Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 073, Royalty. That's right, people. We're sitting down. No, 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 we're literally sitting down with knife-making royalty for this episode. Uh, if I gave away anything other than that, if I came up with any cute, creative uh, show title, you would immediately know who it is, and that would ruin the surprise. But just know they are, I kid you not, knife-making royalty. How you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm glad to be not hand-sanding Magnacut anymore. My arms are tired, very tired. Yeah, I, so, I am, I'm not looking forward to getting back into the hand-sanding. Yeah. Yeah, the... So I did a couple of S grinds for a couple of customers that wanted me to try something different. Uh, I tried the, I was using my bill binky 36 inch radius platen and um, they wanted me to try with the 14 inch wheel is something I've been wanting to try for a while. So finally uh, bit the bullet and threw it, threw it to the grinder. It always, the S grinds are always kind of a hard one because you spend all the time, like getting a really nice flat grind and then you go, back to a 60 grit belt to cut in the, the hollows so um yeah you, you you tried a nice s grind on magna cut learned that you don't like it you'll never do it again and i did it two more times yeah well you know some of us some of us don't <laughs> learn the first time <laughs> yeah but yeah i had somebody that heard about your um your magna cut cap heart and wanted to know uh wanted to know what it would cost for me to do one for them. Mm -hmm. And I said, a kidney, two kidneys, <laughs> yours. <laughs> there's at this point, there's literally not enough money for me to do another one of those. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did. Mm -mm. A good thing. Good thing. I got one then. Got yeah, it no. wire. You first, last only the, uh, was it the alpha, the, uh, Omega. Yeah. Good thing I have this super cool uh, curly ash on there. That's, yeah, that, ha that handle's beautiful. You do have some nice ash. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you want to introduce our sponsors? I do. In no particular order, we're going to start tonight with Jance, the Jance Knife Company. Remember to use discount code KP Grip for ten percent off all your handle material. Uh, unfortunately, if you're going to order something that's not handle material, you need to break that up into two orders to get your 10% off. Or uh, you can call them, uh, she said, and they can apply that 10% uh, off. Oh, there uh, we go. Manually. So if you want to talk to somebody or not talk to somebody, uh, plan accordingly. It, you know, it, 
I got, I'm going to go ahead and put it out here. There is no bad time to talk to some nice Midwestern folk. Like, you know, I, I don't care how your day's doing. Give the folks at Jance a call. You're going to feel better at the end of the conversation. Yep. Want to talk about Atlas Materials? They do a great job with all your phenolics and synthetic materials. Got some of the best prices you can find on bulk sheets and stuff. Make sure you give Atlas Materials a call. And thanks, Dan and Natasha, for all you do there. And they've got all sorts of crazy fiber and all that fun stuff. So, And one of the things to keep in mind about uh, the bulk phenolics, I had a, a young maker come by the shop. Uh, they need to do some heat treating. And we were talking about patterns and they make their patterns out of wood. And I had to, to point out to them that wood's relatively soft. Like you scribe against that a couple of times and your pat your shape has changed. And I was showing them that I made all my, my patterns out of micarta. They were a little shocked. And I realized that I can get like the three thirty seconds or the one eighth inch micarta. I buy it in bulk um, from Atlas and it's long enough that, It'll fit all my patterns and buying in volume, you get a little bit of a discount. But think about using things like micarta or G10 uh, to make your patterns. Because if you're doing them out of wood or aluminum, it's soft and it's easy to make. But very quickly, the scribe rubbing against them is, is going to change the shape. Hmm. Even the aluminum? Yeah. Not as fast as it will with wood. Plus, yeah. I, I'm also going to mention, I don't like grinding aluminum. Like you <laughs> take a look at the material handling sheet on aluminum and realize that shit's kind of dangerous and a little bit scary. Yeah. Especially when you're making tiny little bits of it and throwing it in the air. Yeah. I've I've used plexiglass for a lot of my templates. Um, but um, yeah. And that's what, that's what I used to use. And... Um, you can go to the hardware store or tap plastics and get like Lexan. Mm -hmm. But I have found bang for the buck, uh, just getting 12 by 12s or uh, two by twos in like three thirty seconds or one eighth inch micarta from Atlas has been cost effective for me. Awesome. Yeah. I know a, a lot of knife makers always say, don't make your knife templates out of stuff you can actually use to make knife handles, but to actually make your money. But. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a legitimate. But so what I'm going to make my pat. Once you take uh, phenolics and steel off the table, we've established that you don't want to use aluminum, and you don't want to use wood. Like what's the, what's left? Yeah. I, okay, Lexan. But <laughs> screw or, you, Kyle. Or you could just not make templates at all and have your stuff water jet cut. Yeah. I'm like I'm liking that for the the ones that I got cut. So. It, I mean, but you have a master to check all of those against, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean the you're a responsible maker, and you you have a master pattern. You probably have two of those stored in separate locations just in case, right? Well, now I have it all all of them drawn that are checked with my master, so I got infinite masters. Oh, and that is actually. Uh, we're in sponsors, so I don't want to give you all too much information, but I do actually, I have my patterns at the shop and I have a tracing of every pattern. And then I have a tracing of every pattern at the house. And one of the reasons is after I've used a pattern for a little while, every so often I'll set it on top of the tracing and make sure that it hasn't lost its shape. Mm -hmm. And that if it, when it does lose its shape, I take a little piece of vellum 
I trace it out off of that master tracing. Uh, use contact cement, put the vellum on a piece of micarta, and then grind the shape back out. And that's how I refresh my patterns. Hmm. Um, yeah, because I was thinking about having like sin cut send uh, cut me out like a piece of like eighth inch aluminum for yeah. some master masters of those. But yeah, it's just a good idea once you've established a pattern. Um, have a tracing in two different locations. I mean, if all of your patterns are at your shop and the shop burns down, you've you've now lost your entire catalog. Yeah. Yep. It's a good good tip there, Dano. Yeah. Yeah. And also get them get them drawn up and put them in the cloud so you uh, don't lose them too. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if if you want Microsoft to be able to steal all of your ideas, yeah. I mean, sure, you could do that. Or even if you uh, take your tracing and scan it, uh, so you got that, you could print it out. So yeah, I mean, if if you want to be part of the new generation that uses technology, <laughs> I mean, or you put the paper down on your drafting table and you get it squared with your parallel bar. Yeah, <laughs> you got that. All right, uh, sponsors, sponsors. Yep, Phoenix abrasives. Mm-hmm. You're gonna take Phoenix, or I get to have them today. Uh, you can. Sweet, because I just, I'm I'm about to start grinding again. I'm about to get in the shop. Heads up. Um, there's going to be a bunch of 1084 and 01 coming out of Dogwood, because I, I need some, some fairly soft materials to kind of get my my grind back. But I I may have just sent a house payment to, uh, to Phoenix Abrasives, because mm-hmm. I had to go through and realize that it's been six months and I haven't ordered any belts and blade shows coming up. It is. And if you want anything between now and blade show order now, because two weeks before blade show, there ain't going to be anything available anywhere. <laughs> uh, and fortunately the KP 10 that's capital K capital P 10 giving me 10% off on all my orders, uh, turned that house payment into just most of a house payment. <laughs> uh, nice still loving the incinerators still loving the purple belts Ch- changed up a little bit because i'm doing some 10 series and some softer steels um but for the particle steel and that kind of stuff you can't really beat them yep they track better than norton and they cut every bit as bet as good if not better yeah i like them a lot i'm a big fan of the those two and you can also get Cage Daily Knives sanding sticks and the, right. the Rhino stick. Uh, they're getting that on the, the website, so you can order it that has the sticky back. So I used a ton of that on my 14-inch uh, sanding buddy, uh, hand sanding those S-grinds. So uh, really worked out well having the sticky back a lot better than the double-sided tape uh, stick on the strip method that I was using before. You know, speaking of the sanding buddies, uh, I'm going to jump line here and uh, I'm going to go ahead and talk about one of our new premier sponsors. And that is set S E T that's Sierra echo tango supplies. And that's Spencer, Ed and Todd. And that would be friend of the show. Um, the one, the only Todd hunt. Uh, and it is a uh, by makers for makers kind of website. Uh, they're sanding, they're selling handle materials, uh, a lot of cast stuff, a lot of stabilized stuff, 
they have got a uh, knife maker's vice that I haven't tried yet, but I'm going to, I want to see if I can get my hands on one and, and see how it goes. Uh, definitely dig in the handle materials. I've got some on the way. I'll let y'all know, but man, this is, like I said, it's, it's by makers for makers. Like if you're going to give your money, you might as well give your money up to guys in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've got a bunch of cool stuff. Spencer's doing a lot of resin cast stuff, uh, making a bunch of bottle stoppers and handle material and stuff. Um, yeah. And then the, the knife ices and stuff too. Hey, does that, that ice sound when I take a drink, is that going to be hard for you to edit? Maybe. Okay. Just checking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Ridge runner. You want to, you want to talk about our boy Taylor or is that, uh, do I get to double down? You can do that one. Ridge Runner Blades, uh, as y'all heard from the, yeah, one podcast before, mm-hmm. uh, new sponsor, uh, also a dealer, really excited to get, I won't say ground floor with them because they've been around for a little while, but Taylor's come in, uh, new management. He is, he's a maker from the community. He's passionate. He knows what it's like to be on our side of things. And they are looking to turn this turn Ridge Runner into, I don't want to say destination because they've got a very nice brick and mortar, but they also have got enough sense to be focusing on the the online market. But marquee, I think that is a better phrase. Uh, Taylor is looking to turn Ridge Runner into a marquee dealer. And I am excited to be a part of it. And I'm kind of looking forward to down the road being able to say, ground floor, I told you guys. Yeah. So if you are looking for knives, check them out. Uh, they are rapidly building a, a curated uh, custom maker as well as carrying all your typical production knives. Um, and know that you're you're doing business with somebody that's that's in the industry. They're they're not just someone trying to make money off of the industry. But Taylor's a maker. He's one of us know that you can you can shop with some confidence with them yeah and then we've got our last ones cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives so the premier kitchen cutlery uh and bushcraft i mean the duo i i dare say bushcraft kitchen powerhouse yeah got some some bushcrafters and stuff and some some kitchen stuff so well, and since I'm using some simple carbon, uh, I, I, I've kind of, uh, I've double bet down into, uh, com- you know, I was, it's been a while since I've done some bushcrafting, some outdoor stuff. I've always done a little bit, but since I'm doing some simple carbon, some O one, that kind of stuff, I, I went ahead and, and dusted off some old patterns and there's, I'm going to get, I'm going to get bushcrafty for a little while. Yeah. By the time this has come out, you'll be, uh, coming back from the, Georgia bushcraft thing. I will. So, um, you'll be fresh off of, uh, seeing all those fellow bushcrafters of yours. I will. I'm, we're going to have walked around barefooted and let the energy of the earth come up. I'll probably have a a new fire starting necklace. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to getting back among my people. Yeah. I really like my five finger shoes, but uh, I haven't found any of the, the new ones that fit me really well. So 
man, with my hobbit foot, they don't even, they don't really make shoes for me. So I, any excuse I can get to go barefoot, I'm, I'm down. Yeah. I like that. Uh, it feels almost like barefoot, but you still have a little bit of protection that you can wear around and stuff. So, oh, if I could get, if, if they made a, uh, if they made a pair in hobbit sizes, bet your backside I'd own a pair. Yeah. Yeah. I was wearing them. Um, was it 2019 and Todd Hunt? Uh, Before they said, were cool. <laughs> no, they were never they were, cool. Yeah, they were. They were never really cool. <laughs> but I liked them a lot. Uh, but at Blade Show, Todd goes, "I hope you make enough money at Blade Show that you could buy a decent pair of shoes." <laughs> Thanks, that, Todd. That sounds like Todd. <laughs> uh, and then we've got uh, dealers of Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives as Knife Center. You can find our knives there and you can find Cage Daily Knives at Northside Cutlery and you can find uh, Dogwood Custom Knives at the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Bridge Runner, Asheville, Crafted Edge. You can find Dogwood Custom Knives there also. So definitely... Uh, check out all of our dealers and uh, let them know you're really glad that they carry our knives guild watch and knife shows uh when this comes out all the guild watch stuff will be over that we know about and it'll be off to uh blade show so we got blade show atlanta uh june 2nd to through the 4th and we got dan's booth 537 and my table three double b and uh, if you want to learn how I do my file work, I'll be doing the class again through Blade University. You can get your tickets straight uh, from their website. It'll be on Saturday from 830 to 930. So it's usually in one of those auxiliary rooms, uh, kind of around that triangular atrium area. So, uh, yeah, love to have you and check out uh and learn how to do some file work and do some embellishment on your knives that no production knives will probably ever have. Good way to make your knives set out. Not until technology gets way cheaper. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if they'll... I mean, they could machine it in there, but yeah, it would take a long time. It, it wouldn't have the heart, the soul, the spirit, the spirit of the blade. Yeah. That was one of the things that... Uh, like uh, some of the companies that are trying to do the jig bone patterns, like you want it to be random, but not too random uh, stuff like that. Yeah. That sounds like one of my wife's descriptions, pretty, but not too pretty. I'd like a, a large, but not overly large. <laughs> a grande venti chocolata. Um, oh, man, don't get me started on that bullshit. <laughs> but on uh, venti that's a number that's not a size at blade show we will have uh stickers so come check out dan and my booth or dan's booth my table and uh dan now, was using the smurf walks backward at midnight i was about to say these are limited run they're not going to be out there for the masses uh we only did what we did a hundred uh 200 i believe there's 200 of these stickers. When they're gone, they're gone. And really, it's like 190 because Kyle and I each kept at least five back for ourselves. Yep. So there's 190 of these. And when they're gone, they're gone. So they're not going to be sitting out for every 14-year-old running around 
seeing how much swag they can gather. No, no, no. These are limited run, custom made. Once they're gone, they're gone. You'll never see them again. So, mm. I mean, don't expect to just walk out there and see them just sitting out like yesterday's news. No. If you want one of these, you've got to come up, smile, eye contact, but not too long. Don't make it creepy. And then remember, <laughs> the Smurf walks backwards at midnight. Very cool. That's the that's the secret phrase. All righty. I'll, I'll let that go. Was that to Pee uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse? Like, did did I make it creepy? I think you're okay. Okay, I'll try <laughs> harder next time. I was really going for creepy. Uh, all right, shout, shout outs. Out. Uh, I wanted to give Brian Housewert a uh, shout out. Uh, Housemade.us guy's awesome. Uh, he does a lot for our community and just an all around good guy. I messaged him and said, hey, since you ship a ton of stuff, I'm over trying to load my uh, 8 by 11 sheets of paper into my inkjet printer and printing on my stickers because it'll not pull it in all the way and then print off the side of the sticker and then you got to reprint it and then everything. Brian gave me this, uh, the Dymo 4XL. Apparently they don't make it anymore. They've uh, upgraded it to the 5XL, but apparently the 5XL, you can only use Dymo branded shipping labels because there's some sort of uh, sensor in the roll that the printer knows what size the sticker is. Uh, and shockingly, those stickers are expensive. It's like they planned it that way. Yeah, the 4XL doesn't have that. And it's a thermal label printer, so it doesn't use any ink yet thermally prints it on the paper and that's great i've uh, printed probably 20 shipping labels now and it's been totally awesome so sweet thanks brian and uh also wanted to brian is also a part of the work for it podcast uh with uh brian cone and ben butler and i've really been getting a lot out of their patreon after show so uh, I think it's like $12 a year or something like that. Uh, you can get their after show helps them uh, get to blade show and do some of the things uh, that they might not be able to do otherwise. But Brian and well, both Brian's and Ben give some really good insight. They're usually between like 15 and 30 minutes for the after show. And it's uh, a bunch of stuff that shared the, they don't really want out to just everybody. So really cool. Uh, they answer a lot of questions. Uh, Brian always likes to say, and my opinion on this may shock you, uh, given the old radio tease. So great job, guys. Love your guys' podcast. Uh, also, I was on one of the recent uh, Knives Templars podcast. Uh, they had a question about uh, some of the straightening hammers. Uh, that Don Watson called me up earlier in the day and asked me uh, some questions about it. And then they had a couple of people that weren't able to make the recording. So Don uh, messaged me and said, hey, can you join this uh, <laughs> Join this for the, the recording and be one of the guests? And I joined up with them. So uh, that was a fun show. All right. I am going to um, I'm going to concede. I'm going to yield. My uh, my shout outs for this episode 
because we're doing a Dan's rant. All right. That's right, people. Get comfortable. Pour yourself a drink if you need. Get some fresh sandpaper. Maybe put a cushion on your stool because your old Uncle Dan's got some. I promised I wouldn't cuss because that makes Kyle's job harder. And although that's Duke Kaboom, it's not kind to him. So I'm going to knock. So so I'm not cussing. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) I'm going to charge you another Kephart. (laughs) As long as you know it's not going to be Magna Cut. (laughs) Um. Today, we are going to talk about, um, and we don't do politics on the show, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of politics going on right now. So we're going to touch a little bit about you are your brand. Uh, Unless you have, unless you've got some diabolical long-term plan to be able to, to sell your company or something, you have associated you and your name directly with your company, which is awesome. That is solid marketing. Uh, It's a great story, but the downside is whatever you do or say, your company is associated with. If you get drunk at the pit, right? If you get very drunk at the pit and say or do stupid stuff, then your company has said or done stupid things, and you're going to be judged accordingly. Um, If you decide you want to take social media and and take some political stands or take some some moral stands, however you want to phrase it, that's great. You know, we've talked about there's guys that make knives and they're knife makers. Guys that make knives, they can make anything they want. doesn't matter if it sells. They can say or do anything they want. And if that's what you want to be, good. There needs to be more of you. Get out there and do it. But if you want to make some money at this, if you want to be a knife maker, then part of being a knife maker is having a company. And knife makers don't get to have opinions. They don't get to have opinions about anything. What they get to do is make knives and sell knives. If you've known me long enough, you've heard me quote this, and I'm going to do it again. Uh, My youngest was reading a biography about Michael Jordan, and he was getting pressured. Man, I've already said this earlier in the podcast that's later because we recorded this backwards, didn't we? I think you just told me. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) So uh, you may hear this again, but it is such good advice. You should hear it twice and listen both times. So listen now and understand later. In a biography about Michael Jordan that my my youngest was reading, uh, Michael Jordan was getting pressured to take some political stances. And he said, what, you think conservatives don't buy shoes? Why would I alienate half of my market? Why would I run off half of the people that will buy my shoes? It's the same thing with knives. Whatever your political bent is or your social bent is or your moral bent is, for every one of you, there's an opposite number, and they may buy a knife too. So guys that make knives, they can torpedo their brand if they want to. They can take moral stands. But just understand that there's a consequence to that. By the same token, you can act like a jackass and get drunk 
and do stupid things and say stupid things in public. But if you want to be a knife maker, you have to protect your brand and you are your brand. Um, you don't get social media anymore. You no longer have a private Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter because anything you say on those platforms, anything you post on those platforms, anything you like on those platforms, they are now a part of the public record and they can be traced and associated directly to you and thereby your brand. So before you say something, before you post something, before you do something, you have to take a moment and go, how is this going to affect my position in the market? How is this going to affect my sales? Am I going to alienate possible customers? And if the answer is yes, then you, you got to put the pride in the pocket. You got to put the the joy, the pride of, of taking a stance. You got to put that in your pocket because you're not here to make stances. You're here to make money. Um, and if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Uh, be a guy that makes knives. God love you. I I appreciate the fact that you're willing to sacrifice your business. But understand you are your brand. You can have personal opinions. You can have private opinions. You can vote any way you want. You can donate money any way you want. Behind the scenes, you can take any stance you want. But publicly, you don't get to have a stance. You have no opinions. If somebody's got money, you'll take that money. That's... That's just the way it is. Yep. Um, Good job, Dan. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I, I, and there's some borderline. I mean, I, I work really, really hard to be only U.S. sourced and only U.S. supplied. Some people could call me out on, on a business decision, but I, I'm going to argue that that is not uh, me taking a stance and that is me investing in my fellow makers. And that is yeah. how I'm going to avoid hypocrisy on my very staunch uh, American suppliers first stance. Yeah. Of the three listeners, four, we've now got four listeners. Of the four listeners, one of them might have sent you some, hey, Dan's being a hypocrite email. So I wanted to just get ahead of that for you. Okay. My gift to you, Kyle. Excellent. <laughs> All right. You want to introduce our guest for tonight? I do. So tonight we're going to interview somebody. Those of y'all that have that have listened to this show or have met me probably know that I am either too dumb or too brave to be intimidated by pretty much anyone or anything. But that is not the case tonight. I I am legitimately intimidated to to be interviewing tonight's guest. Um, he's a, a brilliant and incredibly innovative maker. He's a foundational member of the industry. He's known for his mastery of the craft and has taught men that I hope to one day at least be able to, to be close to the level of, of, of his students. Uh, tonight, we've got Steve Schwarzer. How are you doing tonight, Steve? I'm near perfect for an old man. <laughs> I'm vertical and it doesn't hurt too bad. <laughs> oh, that's winning. That's step one and two. Yeah. <laughs> no, I enjoy life. It, uh, it, uh, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Every morning I wake up, I, oh, thank you, Lord, I got another day. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah my, my biggest concern about dying is I'm going to miss something. 
I just don't want to be there when it happens. Otherwise, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an interesting world we live in. I'm just excited to be in this craft for so many years, and I enjoy it. Enjoy meeting new people and people are doing interesting things. And this is so much better than a grown-up job. Yeah. One of the first questions we always like to start off with, Steve, is where'd you grow up? Well, that's the problem. I never grew up. (laughs) (laughs) I got an 18-year-old kid trapped in a 75-year-old body. Uh, I I was raised in a little rural township outside of Arlington. Texas and Pantico, Texas. That's where I was raised. And then um, my dad moved us to California in high school years. And then I was back for just a little bit of that. And then I went off to see the world. I've been all over living down in Florida since 70. And, uh, but I've traveled extensively in Europe here and uh, with the nice stuff. And, it just, it just opened a whole new world for me. Anyway, that's where I started was there. Yeah. I remember when you were at the Knife Makers Guild, Midwest Knife Makers Guild, hammering, you were talking about going to the Vatican and uh, seeing the armory and stuff there. And uh, oh, it was cool seeing some of the, hearing some of the European stories. Oh, well, that was in 93. I went, I taught at the National Forge Museum in Germany. There was the largest meeting of Damascus makers on the planet. And they had uh, Yuri Miller from the Hermitage and uh, Piazowski out of Poland. It's the first time he'd been out behind since the Iron Curtain went up. All the Arab nations were there. Uh, all the museum directors in Europe were there. And uh, you get to meet a lot of people. Uh, we had people from everywhere and uh nice oh some strange thing happened there let me get rid of that if you disappear Mm -hmm. i'll be back in a week anyway it uh (laughs) i met a lot of people and it was fun and uh there's about a half a dozen (laughs) stories that came out of that but having met all these people see i presented papers on carbon diffusion and pattern welded steel for Dr. John Verhoeven Ames Laboratory at that meeting, and I, I barely escaped high school. I found grades I liked, and I'd just stay in them. But uh, he didn't have time to present the papers, and I was also presenting uh, all my uh, all my information on that shooting scene that I'd built in 90, where it's a man and a dog and birds flying, and it was, it was a pretty uh, extensive piece, I think it's historically the first time it had been done but i may be wrong and i have to add everything with a little caveat now as far as i know <laughs> yeah it, it, what happens is, is <laughs> we're all working in the same medium and it's steel mm-hmm. and uh there are solutions to problems and and we can come up with a unique solution to a problem but there's no reason some guy that's very highly educated or in the craft can't come up with the same solution because he's using the same medium. And I'll give you an example is I, I was using a, um, you've seen a lot of these tiling methods they're doing today. I was doing that in the 80 and uh, making, uh, putting tiles down both sides of a center core. And I thought, quote, being a young man, I thought I'd quote invented that. And uh, was uh, anyway, there's several people come along and they would use, 
half the method and they'd call it something else, whatever. And I was going to write an article about pattern welding about seven years ago, seven, maybe eight years ago. And uh, I talked to a guy I know that's really sharp. He, he's a, really a brain in ancient metals and stuff. And I told him that I was going to talk about my, quote, invention of this method. And he said, I've got something you need to look at before you publish. And I said, okay, <laughs> what is it? He sent me a, a little pamphlet that was published in 1992 about a guy, it was a Javanese bladesmith. And not only was he using something similar, he was using exactly that method. And I, I assure you, I've never been to Indonesia. I would like to go, but I hadn't been. And so I had to rethink my processing because what we're working with is a common medium and uh, there it's no reason somebody couldn't spontaneously come up with the same solution because it works in that material. I had to rethink, you know, kind of how I grabbed on this stuff. But it was a learning situation for me. And all of it is. I'm uh, uh, striving constantly to get better at what I mm -hmm. do. So it's a pretty neat journey. The problem is you run out of time. There ain't enough time to do it all. So that's why I teach as much as I teach is because I can I uh, can fire up some young guy that's got a lot of energy and they'll run down the hill and check out a whole bunch of places I don't have time to go look in and then <laughs> generally they'll report back. So it mm -hmm. it serves both of us well. Yeah. So what was the uh what was the first knife you got? The first knife I had? Yes, sir. Was probably the ones I remember and I've got two of them and they were in the back of comic books and you could buy the things for 25 cents when i was a kid of course 25 cents would buy a baby ruth that took four kids to eat so it wasn't you know <laughs> back yeah. in the 50s you could buy a huge candy bar for for a dime and anyway if you got the comic book you could order these knives out of there and they all had a uh, i've got two of them they got cast aluminum handles and they got a claw with a ball in the end of it and they were like uh they looked a little bit like a Fairburn dagger. And I found two of them in a junk shop. One of them was broken. I bought it anyway because it brought back those memories. But that was the first knives I ever remember. And that was, cool. I was probably six, five or six years old. Some of the, the faux medieval with like the, the dragon's claw for the palm. Yeah, yeah just yep. a little cheap, cheap thing. I still got them. I look at them every once in a while and just laugh. And then, um, yeah. The kind of the history of my knife making. I'm I forged a little bit in the seventh grade and uh I made a cold chisel or something, but that's when they had real stuff in school. You could heat up a piece of iron and beat on it or make a coffee table or whatever you wanted because they had shop class. Now you had actual Votech. Yeah, you have to take class on how not to offend people and I never would have passed one of those. So I was glad they had shop when I was little. And then <laughs> uh and uh Late, late 60s, my dad always worked in the aircraft industry, and uh, I kind of followed in his footsteps. And right out of high school, I went to work for a company called LTV Aerospace, and I actually was able to work on some really cool stuff there. One of them was the first vertical stabilizer that was ever built for a 747. I was on the team that built it. I worked on Saturn rocket parts. I worked in the Ford shop. And, and sheet metal prefab out there. And so I've got a, a good introduction to giant air hammers. I mean, some of the dies weighed tons. And uh, 
I'd run those hammers and and uh, got to learn sheet metal skills and all that stuff. And then I decided I'd go do something else with my life besides build airplanes. That's how I got started. I made my first few knives out there in the late 60s. And I, I don't call them knives because they were knife-shaped objects. Yeah. I had a piece of stainless steel and I ground out something that looked like a knife. I didn't know anything about heat treating or any of that stuff. So I made knife shaped objects. Yeah. And then I got to Florida. Uh, it was like 1972. I got a job working doing heavy rigging and moving 500,000 pound loads and stuff with a boilermakers local out of Jacksonville, Florida, 199. And they had, ship fitters and uh, boilermakers and blacksmiths and there were no blacksmiths left in the local mm. and i was interested in it and so i bought a book by alex beeler on on uh, on blacksmithing and there was about a page and a quarter in there on forging blades and it flipped a switch in me that has never shut down i've just constantly gone on with it and that's how it kind of started and uh, made a bunch of fillet knives early on in the early 70s, I was forging them and cutting them out hot. Everybody says, well, you can't tear up anvil. Yes, you can. <laughs> if you cut out <laughs> cross-cut saw blades with a cold chisel on the face of your anvil hot, you can mess it up. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I learned that was a, one of those false things. that You can't destroy anvil. Yeah, you can. I still have the anvil, by the way. But anyway, I was getting 15 and $20 a piece for those wonderful knives. And, you uh, want to make me one down? Of the phone company. And, <laughs> I, I've still got I'd love a $15 worth of knife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a, yeah. It was fun. It was fun. And my friends told me I was wonderful. So I thought I was. And then I met a guy named Bobby Tyson. I never will forget him. He, was, uh, he could make one of the finest pocket knives you ever saw out of some magic steel called D2. I had never heard of it. Anyway, he made the mistake of telling me he had books on making knives, and I followed him home, and it was the worst mistake of his life. I was at his house about every weekend. <laughs> and I, in the course that first weekend, he probably advanced my craft five years by being kind to me and showing me how to fit and finish and do what it took to make a decent-looking knife. And we're still friends to this day. And it's so funny that circle has turned now and he's retired from it, but he still forges every now and then he makes these big forged blades. And that's what I was doing. And then he was making these wonderful pocket knives. And uh, so the circle has turned, but I, I never will forget him and his kindness to me in those early days. You've, yeah. you've worked with your hands your whole life. Uh, but at what point would you say you were a knife maker? You, oh, you've talked about a couple of your dabbling, but, but yeah, it, um, it, well, what happens is you'll see it a lot. Uh, you'll see it a lot in this business. Of course, now you, it's like Elon Musk says, you can train yourself to be anything for free, but you go on the internet and there's literally hundreds of experts. Some of them actually are. And, uh, so if you're careful about how you wiggle through all that stuff that you can get a good education. When I started, there was like six guys on the planet doing what I wanted to do, and only one of them would talk to me, and that was Daryl Meyer. And uh, it was real interesting. Uh, I, the guy was just a genius with uh, pattern rolling development stuff back in the early 70s. He was up at Carbondale, Illinois, 
and then I uh, ran into, uh, I started trying to forge well by myself and I couldn't make it happen. Everything I made looked like a cabbage on a stick. None of it would stick together. Little bits and pieces would stick together. And I heard about an old cowboy over in Williston, Florida named Alfred Pendray. And I begged Alfred in to let me come over. And then he was too busy to mess with me. So he put me on his dad. His dad was John Pendray and they were horseshoers. They could weld nothing to anything. It's just unbelievable forge welders. And they did it every day in the shoeing business. If they needed to make a pair of tongs or hammer, they'd just grab up a bunch of scrap iron and put it together. And if you etched any of that stuff, it would be pattern weld. But they weren't interested in making knives. They were interested in making tools. Anyway, I went over there and Mr. John showed me how to forge weld. I spent about half a day over there. And once I got the idea of how to make it stick together, I went home and went to work. And I never looked back since. Um. So did you have, I mean, we've, t- again, we've talked about that you've worked with your hands your whole life. Were there other jobs or hobbies that, that affected your approach to knife making the, the skills that you learned in another industry? Maybe the aircraft uh, industry from before, because everything had to be so precise. Uh, right in the early 70s, I didn't go full time at knife making until 82. And that's because I had a really bad accident and, uh, I was unable to to go to a job, but in the early seventies, I worked in uh, for a place called Sheffield Steel, and they built bridges, these big giant railroad bridges, and some of the flanges on the I beams they were building would be four inches thick and twenty inches wide stuff, you know, box girders that you could walk through. And uh, I begged a guy for a job, and he. <laughs> He was out there. He said, I was there three days. And he said, I'm going to have to let you go. And I said, what do you mean let me go? I just started. He, he said, well, you're working nonstop, and I uh, can't see you slowing down, but you're not getting anything done. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, it's taking you three days to build one of these girders. He said, what kind of tolerances you're holding? And I said, well, about a 32nd of an inch. He said, oh, my Lord. He said, a half inch is good. Get on with it. So I went from, from one every three days to one every day, and he was happy with me. Anyway, at the, all that heating and forging in there, we, we actually had to bend metal and heat big rosebuds and stuff. All that stuff is collective memory and uh, working steel. And so it, it just all began to stack on itself. But once I started with the knives, it was like it was on. I, I couldn't get enough of it. I, anytime I could find anybody that showed any interest at all, I was picking their brain. Uh, where do you get your inspiration from? It just comes out. Uh, I was an abysmal failure at school. I'd find grades I like and just stay in them. That was a joke. If I was born today, I would have the alphabet after my name. I got the focus of a fire ant, really. uh, I'm like a kid with a flashlight. I can focus for about 30 seconds on anything unless I like it. If I like it, I'm like a laser beam. I'm in there a thousand and one percent. And you can look back at my life. I don't do anything a little bit. I started having trouble with my shoulders. I was 62, nearly 63 years old. And I had a friend of mine that ran a teaching hospital up east. And he's, I, I called him. His name was Sandy Klein. He's passed now, but great guy. He was, he was like the doctor for knife makers for years and years. 
I told him, I said, I got to do something about my shoulders. And he said, well, I got a research team up here. He ran a big teaching hospital up east. And he said, I got to, I'll put my team on it. Anyway, they, he sent me a little packet of papers with these shoulder exercises you did and uh, to strengthen those joints. And I went, okay. So I went down to the local little gym and I'm in there doing my little four pound weights and uh, doing my, my little exercise. And there's this guy over there. He's, He's, uh, he's, uh, he's built like Kyle and he, but he's like 10 years older than me. And he's doing what uh, an exercise called good mornings, which is basically bending over the waist, but he was doing it with 500 pounds. And I went, Oh man. I said, if somebody tried to bulldog you, you, they'd be messing up. He just laughs. Says, I need a training partner. He's a real rough guy. And I said, okay. Anyway, he was the chief of police here in Crescent City, Florida. And uh, I started training with him. Seven months later, I broke the Florida state record for bench press. And over the next few years, I broke eight world records bench pressing after I was 63. Wow. Here's all the, you can look them up. They're AAU records. They still stand. Um, last one was 408 pound bench. Say, so I don't do anything a little bit. I raced airboats. I've done all kinds of stuff. I've done martial arts since 62. I wasn't good at it, but I'm enthusiastic. Uh, my and that can make up for a lot. Uh, so, uh, what are some of your your design principles? Uh, How do you approach approach your design? I approach my designs. I've had a lot of good instruction. Uh, I have to go back to Jim Schmidt. Uh, was one of my mentors real early on, the late seventies, early eighties, all the way up till he passed. Everything has to tell a story. And then uh, the other big influence was uh, probably Joe Heidevick. He's a friend of mine, and he tried his best to teach me how to do AutoCAD, and he <laughs> failed miserably because my brain function doesn't go there. But he taught me about tangent curves, and tangent curves are critical to the design of any knife. It has to flow. You look at knives over a horizon line, and then you can see every variation in those curves. And uh, it's something you almost have to demonstrate, but you can hold a knife up, look over the back of it against a black wall, and you'll see, you can see a half a thou out if you're trained your eye to do that. And so your your lines have to flow, and then the thing has to function as the tool is designed to be. Now, if it's just a tool, it does, the art part doesn't come into it. But if it's going to flow and become an art piece or something that, strikes an emotional tune to you, a pair of pliers won't do that for you unless you that's all you have to fix your radiator hose with. But uh, but knives have to tell a story. It's like Schmidt. I got all enthralled with him with firework. He was the master. He taught firework to everybody in the business. Uh, the Larry Fagan and Barry, uh, and Barry Davis and all those guys that are the, old, quote, old guys, they followed in his school. Delana Warren's one of them as well. And they do beautiful firework. And they learned it from Jim Schmidt. And so he showed me back in probably 79 or 80. He had a little block he made with all his firework samples on it. And he showed me how to make those designs. And so I started doing that. And so I made a knife. And, I, man, I fireworked everything on that thing. I couldn't wait to show it to him. I am running up to him. We used to go up to Ashokan a lot in those days. And I ran up and showed him that knife and he looked at it and he goes, hmm. 
well, uh, would you buy a new car and put four different hubcaps on it? And I said, what? <laughs> yeah. He said, Fowler, he says it has to tell a story. You don't mm-hmm. just put it on there. And he said, he said, never put embellishment on a knife that's worth <laughs> this worse than the knife itself. It devalues it. And I went, well, I guess that's the best I've ever been told. My knives suck. <laughs> anyway, but he explained to me that firework's supposed to tell a story. And the same way with the design work on any knife, it has to tell a story and it has to flow, has to have good lines to it. I've got a, a student of mine and a dear friend of mine, and he lives in AutoCAD or, or in drawing programs. And his knives look like that. And they're excellent tools. They're super done. I mean, he pumps them out and uh, they're absolutely state-of-the-art tools, but they they don't have as much life in them as they could have. But it's hard to put life in something where you're trying to do production. Yep. And uh, I do both. I do a semi-production skinner that I do in batches. It's all Rollforge 52100. And I, it's the only way I can afford to sell them for what I sell them for and then uh, have them heat treated where they're exactly where I want them. And I test the heck out of them and uh, and I make those things. And they're all, quote, identical, except that I hand make every handle that goes on them and I hand grind them. I hand grind every one of them. But I, I get them water jetted. You know, it's no different than paying some high school kid to saw them out on a bench and grind them to a line. The only thing is it's more accurate than the kid. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. I'm all for that. Yeah. I just got my first batch of knives, water jet cut and uh, it's nice. It's good stuff. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I prefer a water jet over laser because it doesn't disturb the structure. Uh, it, uh, yeah. It's just, it's a better deal. And, and then if they're all going to be custom ground or whatever, then you get them double disc ground, and then they're all exactly the same thickness. And uh, anytime you're doing production, it has to be the same. You can't just you can't just tweak a knife in the production. Yep. That's one of the things most people don't understand. They think, "Oh, I'll make ten of those." Well, yeah, you can tweak ten. Try tweaking three hundred. And uh, anytime that you're designing for somebody, I designed for a company for a year. I lost an eye, and while that eye was healing and uh, had it rebuilt, I designed for a company and uh, and uh, made product. And but it found out real quick that you couldn't just run back there and and change a little design on 300 knives. So that that's not practical. And so you you have to get the prototype has to be absolutely correct before you start. If you don't, you're you're wasting your time. It's expensive. And all of a sudden, adding a half inch to the profile or putting a tighter curve in, it's amazing how that yeah. affects your price point. That how quickly you can turn oh, a, a fifty dollar yeah. knife into a sixty seventy dollar knife. Yeah, or. <laughs> or make it impossible. I found that out when I was machining parts with EDM. That's where most of my discovery process came from on 3D printing and uh, uh, doing powder metal technology was trying to get away from that very expensive wire EDM work. You know, you go down and get a part cut, costs you a thousand dollars. Well, you can't put that part in a $300 <laughs> knife. You got to put that part in a $3,000 knife. 
you can't do it. That's like, you know, making a $50 Skinner and putting $300 worth of fossil ivory on it. That's a non-starter. And uh, so it, it, those events in my career changed my thought process when I could see it all. And uh, now I'm back to doing my basic stuff. I'm carving, developing patterns. Uh, I'm using the 3D stuff that Ron Hardman and I developed with his crew out there. And uh, that was a pedagogic event. At, uh, one thing stacks on another. I'll, I'll run you through that story real quick. Is uh, Back in the day, I was doing all these multi-paneled blades on folders. And I've got pictures I can show you of some stuff, but it's got like six panels on each side of a blade that's two and a half inches long. And those are all forge welded together. Well, I found out that if I put sacrificial material on the outside, then I would get a better weld. And that's a common practice now. A lot of guys are doing it on bigger blades and stuff where they're using a lot of end grain material. They'll put sacrificial material on the outside to trap it. Well, I was doing that with it, with these uh, with these little blades. And I was using stainless steel foil that had been burned in there from uh, Bob Dozier donated me a truckload of it from his from his shop. And I would cut that stainless steel foil out that had been oxidized and put it in there. And I'd put my sacrificial material and weld out the edge. So after you welded it, you could grind the edges of that billet and it would fall off. Well, I ran out of it. And I thought, well, what do they use in in other forms and well in mokume gane they use paper and uh, i thought well i'll just use some paper so i was building up my little blade and i took a little pizza of uh regular copy paper and laid in there and i welded the edge out and i brought that thing up to a welding heat and hit it a couple times with a hammer and started grinding on the edge and there was no weld line it wouldn't come off and i'm trying to figure out what the heck's going on and I finally Garbage. dipped the thing in acid, and I could see mosaic all the way around the outside of that thing. Well, what had happened is the paper had turned to carbon and lowered the eutectic level between that sacrificial material and the blade material and dropped the, the temperature. Uh, the higher the carbon, the lower the melt temperature. So that interface right there was just, it was like a perfect flux. And that paper disappeared into that blade absorbed by that blade carbon diffusion and there it was i went perfect weld well then i started using paper forms with powder to make all kinds of elements i just make them out of paper and fill them up with different kinds of powder and forge weld them and get images so i'm out two years ago i'm out at uh, uh kilroy's with uh, ron hardman and his bunch and uh curie she did a uh, uh, young lady that works with him out there she did the first weld with it but we were in there bending nickel sheet doing mosaic patterns. And uh, uh, Ben, I think it's Ben. I'm, I'm, he's going to kick my butt when he hears it. I can't remember. Ben Bannister, I think. We've just got four anyway, listeners, so he, he'll probably be fine. Anyway, with all four people take notes. Anyway, we were making <laughs> these solid forms, printing them with a 3D printer. And we were bending all the stuff around it. And Ron says, why don't you make one hollow and we'll put powder in it. And I went, what is the the material, the PLA? And uh, uh, his guy's sitting there, and he looks up at me, and he says, well, it's plant-based material. I went, it's paper. It'll work. Anyway, they, we printed out a KW 
And Curie filled it up with nickel powder and went out there and welded it. And that was the first piece of it that was done. And so we open source the technique because it's a simple idea once you know it. You know, nothing's impossible once you know how. And so we thought, well, we're not going to be able to protect it or patent it. And uh, so we'll open source the thing. So that's what we did. And we shared it with everybody. Actually, I'm doing another demo at Blade Show this year. Ron's coming and we're going to have all that stuff up at Blade Show in Atlanta if somebody's interested in it. But he also sells the forms and the kits. He'll print stuff for you. But all of that was a way to get around paying for real expensive machine work. I've got one little bar in my shop in there that's got 96 feet of cut in it with a wire machine. And if I hadn't owned a machine, it would have never been cut because it, it's like <laughs> watching grass grow. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, that's that we story. Kinda, yeah, the, the wire EDMs are really cool. They can cut extremely precisely. And one of the really nice things about them is uh, you can stack multiple blades on top of each other and it doesn't really affect how, how much longer it takes. So you can cut 15, 20 blades out all at one time. Mm-hmm especially with the modern machines. I had one that was so old, it took three programs to talk to it. And uh, <laughs> it had those big reels on it. <laughs> it okay. a, the computer part of it, you could walk in there and it ate right. up my whole shop. But I had that thing for a few years and played with it. And then my buddy, uh, Joe Heidevick, he would cut all kinds of stuff for me. Oh, no. He's the one that cut that yeah. shooting scene for me with the man, the birds <laughs> and the dog and all that. He cut all that for me. Well, and we kind of we we kind of jumped to the end of the story. I want to come back to the the process. Um, you're you're known for a great number of things, but one in particular is your your canister steel, your powder work. Um, clearly, the the images you do. Um, and I know my understanding was it kind of started with you wanted to put your signature all the way through a blade. That was where the powder started. Uh, well, not really. The first powder I encountered, I was up at the, it was either, I think it was the first hammer in that Jim Batson had at his house. And there's a friend of mine there named Gary Runyon, who is a powder metal wizard for Teledyne. He's retired now, but he was ran all their powder, powder, powder metal department. And he was up there, and he was mixing nickel powder and borax, and he was trying to wick it into a uh, piece of cable and weld it. And I walked over there, and he said, can you help me with this? I said, yeah, we'll put it in a can. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, Daryl Meyer and I have been doing canister stuff forever. Who knows who started it? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, the whole canister, I'm going to have to back up a little bit more. The whole canister thing came about to keep from paying for hot isothermal press work. It's called a hip machine. And a hip machine is you put everything in a bag, which is a canister. You pull a vacuum on it and you put it in a containment and you pump argon in there until you got about 40,000 to 80,000 PSI pressure. And you heat that to about 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. And it will consolidate anything to almost anything into a solid mass with no void. It's a solid state welding process. Very expensive to do. It cost you anywhere from thousand, two thousand bucks to get a little bag done. So that 
put that completely out of the range of Daryl and I as knife makers to do that. So we started making our own cans. And uh, so we would make cans. And I thought, well, I've got this really great idea. I would take a refrigeration gauges off of a, uh, like you put Freon in an automobile. And I'd run over there and, and build up my can. And I had a T-bar and I'd hook it on. And I would blow nitrogen into the can. And then I would vacuum it out. And then I tried just using a vacuum on there, and that was great until you got the first crack in the can, and then you're sucking air over your part. So that defeated that thing. So I found out if you left a little positive pressure of nitrogen in there, then you could weld it incredibly low temperatures because there's no oxygen. The oxygen will scavenge every electron in the area and turn it into an oxide. So if you can get the oxygen off of it, it'll weld. So we were doing that, and uh, I was. Man, I was so excited. I was welding stuff, and I couldn't wait to tell Daryl about my octopus rig and all this stuff. I went running up to him like a new puppy, and I was all excited, jumping around, telling him about my octopus rig. And he says, well, that's nice. He said, uh, I just put two or three drops of diesel in there, and I don't have to fool with all that. <laughs> and just busted my bubble. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> I'm back to using the octopus rig, but I'm using it for titanium, and it works great so, for that. But uh, but the <laughs> I've seen it welded without it. I still watched it up there with you guys. That uh, Peter Martin welded a chunk up there, and he just used a couple pieces of bed rail. But he's a, he's magic. He's the only one that can do that. It's kind of like the guy at the at the carnival that uses those mystery welding rods. He's the only guy in the world can weld anything with one of them but he's good mm -hmm. at it. <laughs> yeah. Peter's been doing some really cool stuff with uh, his logo and stuff like that. Yeah. He's super. He's a good guy and he's a great artist. He's a, he's a, I call him my friend. I love him to death. I, I really respect his work. He's done some uh, amazing things, but you're uh... Corey, his son uh, just did an amazing knife that he had at the Badger knife show. It looks like a, an octopus or a, squid or something like that uh with like an ivory eye it's all carved up and stuff if you haven't seen it uh definitely check that out on his page Who did it? his son Corey. oh yeah cool yeah i'll i'll yeah. uh i'll forward you the picture on instagram i'd love to see it they're both talented but yeah but back to the kind of the where you got started um yeah you Right on that on that powder. What I yeah I am like like I said I'm like a kid. You got to direct me. It's like herding cats. Anyway, so uh, oh that's this is that's why Kyle makes me have show notes. Otherwise, I couldn't I couldn't follow from one <laughs> question to the next. Uh, All right, so I'm back up there with Gary Runyon, who we affectionately call Precious. <laughs> he's one of the smartest guys that I ever ran into. Anyway, he's trying to put this nickel powder in this uh cable and so we put it in a canister and welded it and then he invited me up to teledyne and i went up there to see what they do at that plant and it was just out amazing anyway so long story short we get down and i decide through history people have put names and pictures and things all the way back to the 1700s they were doing it using square wire and stacking elements, and they were getting names and pictures, but nobody was doing their actual signature or script. 
So I go over to my buddy Joe, and I have him map my actual signature of my last name. And he cut that out, and it's got some big loops and dog legs in it and stuff like that with little penetrations that have to go back. It's quite an arduous journey to get the thing cut. And I cut it out of a two-inch block of high-carbon steel. Anyway, I took that home after he cut it, and I was trying to put this little 10,000 nickel sheet down in there. I couldn't get it to go, and so I had Joe cut the block in half. I said, I'm going to use that as a forging guy, and I'm going to push that sheet in there. Well, I collapsed the thing and destroyed it in a press. And I'll paraphrase Joe when I showed it to him. He went, golly gee, I wish that hadn't happened. I think that's what he said. <laughs> and I said, would you make me another one? And I think he said, hmm, I'd be glad to. <laughs> anyway, he made the other one. My ears were still growing back on. And he made the other one. I'm sitting there dropping these little elements in it that for the penetration and the loops in my name. And he says, you know, too bad we can't pour that in there. And it switched, flipped in my head. And I said, we can. I mortgaged my house and bought a 20-gallon drum of nickel powder. You know how much nickel powder is a pound? I can't imagine. Well, back then, it was $26 a pound. You know how many pounds are in a 20-gallon drum? And that's the only way you could buy it? Oh. It's a lot of damn money. Anyway, I'm still using out of that drum. I'm down about that far. <laughs> <laughs> on it nice. i've been using out of it since that was then. a hell of an investment yeah it is it's still worth money but anyway i poured that powder in there and forge welded that signature and i had some sems run on the uh up gary ran them for me uh scanning electron microscope work done on it that mapped all the elements in it it was pretty neat and it was a historical first as far as i know okay i had to throw that in. yeah no i but anyway <clears throat> I, I'm going to, you tend to know more than most people I know. And I have certainly never heard of anybody that could use that technique that especially that could put a script signature in. Right. It's, it's difficult so, to do, so what you, but the secret, to all this stuff that, that I do is, is the controlled forging. The picture puzzles are easy. The controlled forging is not, that's the difference in my work and a lot of other people's work. And that's why when I train people in my shop, I make them slow down because they're so anxious to see the project finished. They over push stuff. They hurry. They're in the press just getting it sorted out and done. You can't do that. You, you have to control it. And then you have to learn how much stuff collapses. Uh, powder, especially if you put voids in a powder and you fill it with powder, I don't care if you pack it with a 100-ton press. It's still got to come down 30% to be a solid. Even though you've centered it and it's holding hands, it's still full of porosity. So you have to come down thirty about 30% to make a solid out of it. That's kind of the industry standard for it. So that, that first signature, you EDM'd it, and then you all used right. powder, nickel powder, filled the, the void of the signature with the nickel powder, and then, exactly. and then forge welded it. Forged it, but nickel has some unusual properties. Uh, you can take a billet of Damascus and put one little tiny piece of nickel in it and make a million layer blade out of it, and you'll still see the nickel. Huh. No other steel will do that, hmm. and I don't know why. But the- tried to figure out why. But after a while, I just said, "Well, magic." Okay, I got that. Let's let's use it. You know, I use it in a lot of stuff. And 
that was that was kind of the the first step that led you down this road of cre- creating right. a void doing all and then can- fill it with a powder right. and then and then uh, then forge weld it into a solid yeah. and then that saves you having to do it and then I've I've had students that are just have done exceptional stuff one of them is Matt Deskin and Matt owns Volcano Knives out on the West Coast. But he was a hell of a pattern welder, and he can do it all. I mean, but he's he's manufacturing now, and, and he's happy doing that. But he came up with the plate and powder stuff. And uh, Shane Taylor uses a lot of that, where you take sheets of steel and you either uh, water jet or uh, laser out your image, and then you stack those plates up and fill them full of powder and weld them. And that's another way to get around that real expensive machine work. And he came up with that, and uh, I use that all the time. Um, so you moved from making the negative space in a block of steel, filling it with powder, and then you moved to 3D printing a hollow shape. And you'd fill that with powder and then fill the negative space with a separate powder. And y'all figured out when when you heated that, the the form would just it become carbon and be absorbed into the into the hole, and that's what would get you that that seamless two metal welded. Uh, the way you do the pictures in steel is is the way I perceived it. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's the way I do a lot of them. And then they were doing stuff seven or 800 years ago, 900 years ago. That was just incredible. I had a, a guy send me a, a picture of a pattern one time and he didn't put any context to it. He just sent it to him. He said, tell me how they did this. And I looked at it and I looked at it for about two minutes. And I said, that's plate and powder. And then I, I called him back. And I said, that's plate and powder. And he said, well, there's a problem with that hypothesis. And I said, what is, what's wrong with my hippopotamus? <laughs> And he said, that's 900 years old. And I went, ooh, okay, let me look again. Well, they'd forged everything to shape and stacked it. And and I'm doing some of that now. And, and uh, I've got uh, some of my students are doing it. Seth Lopez just did a, he did a piece with me last year, year before, where he forged all the parts and put them together. Wow. And it came out beautiful stuff. And he's since expanded on that. He's. His finished work is far better than mine by a pretty good measure now. But he's another one of those guys that doesn't do anything just a little bit. He's really good, and he's dedicated. So, Do you have a favorite technique? Yeah, I want to keep making my knives smaller and smaller until there's nothing left but the idea and sell that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like pattern welding, and I like carving. I, uh, my carving, and I'm getting back into it again. And I went down, uh, uh, I watched a guy do some work and uh, met him out at uh Texas show at uh, Spencer uh, Applin. And he does a lot of organic carving. And I wasn't, I'm not interested in his design work. I was interested in, I mean, his design work's beautiful, but I just, I don't, I don't like to replicate or copy others. But I was interested in his finishing techniques and he's pretty guarded about who he shares with but i I threw my weight around a little bit and he agreed to let me come hang out for a day and about a thousand dollars worth of ups later i have enough tools to 
replicate his finishing techniques except for the experience, and he's got years of it. But uh, he's he's a guy, you know, like that. I, I met him briefly oh, four years ago or three years ago up at the Blade Show and then met him, and then he he, he agreed to let me. So I'm always studying. I want to – I'm looking for ways to make my work better. If I can, if I can find a technique that will help me improve what I do, I, I'm all over. When did, uh, when and how did you go? Or are you? A, do you consider yourself a full time maker now? I have been since '82. I have. I worked one year when I lost my eye, and it's because I didn't have any depth protection. I couldn't work for myself. I had the eye rebuilt, and I got it back. I was lucky. That's why I'm always on people about you have to have eye protection in my shop because I went for a year not being able to see out of that eye. And that's when I, I did some design work for a guy and uh, a company. And uh, it was great. It carried me for the year and he quit paying me. I quit going and we parted friends. But that's uh, it's just one of those. Uh, there's some hallucinogenic thing has jumped up in my screen here. I don't know. There it is. It's gone. Anyway, at, uh, yeah, at, uh, I haven't done anything except work for myself since 82, other than that one year. And I love it. Uh, what are, uh, what are some things you did right when you went full time? I didn't let starving to death bother me. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, we're, we're back to, we're back. <laughs> I, I want, Money wasn't the issue. I didn't. The thing is, I didn't run it as a business. I should have. That's where I. That was a mistake. Uh, I've got some friends of mine that have been incredibly successful in the knife industry, and uh, he's got a huge business. He just built a new facility, and he's running and making tons of money, and uh, he's earned every damn penny of it. And he's up in Tennessee, and uh, or. Where is yeah, it? yeah, Bowling Rock. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, he, Danny Winkler, he's he, and what he and Karen built, they built it by being smart. They ran it as a business, and they took notes, and they they remembered everybody's name that ever bought from them. They could literally set up in a phone booth in Hayhira, Georgia, and sell out because they took the time to send notes to everybody that bought from them, and and recognized them, and they collected information and sent them notes on their birthday and that kind of stuff, and they ran it as a proper business. I never did that. I was too excited about trying to discover the next pattern, and I'd spend three months building a pattern and make one knife out of it because that was the old pattern. I needed a new pattern now, which didn't make any sense business-wise. But in the end, I'm very, very happy. I've been all over the world doing what I do, and uh, I'm just enjoying life and got a great partner laura is just amazing to work with and be with and so i i don't have any regrets uh, do i wish i had a tub full of money i would just buy more tools yeah and uh, at 75 <laughs> everybody says why are you buying tools i said well i might need them yeah <laughs> um what were some challenges what were some challenges about going full-time that uh that you didn't expect were there any surprises not really. Uh, I live simply. Uh, if you, you know, if you're not wanting to amass a fortune or whatever, it. Uh, I don't like chasing that dog. It. Um, 
I've been free. I mean, what's freedom worth? And everybody says, well, why do you charge that for your knives? And I said, well, you're not buying my knife. What you're doing is you're buying a block of time you can't ever get back at any price. That time I've allotted to make that knife, I can't get back for any amount of money. So that's what you're buying is a slot of my time. And I didn't know that. I learned that from another student of mine who is quite famous and probably one of the best knife records I know is Jason Knight. He used to write about me when he was in high school at 13 years old. That's how long I've known him. And, uh, you know, just a few years ago, I was up and we were doing a bunch of filming for a series and that stuff. And that's when he told me that. And it stuck to me. It was like, okay, that's what they're buying is a block of time. I was going to. They're not buying the, the knife. The knife is the reward they get for investing in my time. But that's, uh, yeah, that's, I wish I'd have learned that 40 years ago. Another one of his quotes that I like that I was about to use is uh, when somebody asks, you know, how much, how long did it take him to make a knife? I I saw him point to a kitchen knife that he had done. We were talking to some people and he said, well, I've got, uh, I've got 15,700 something hours in that knife. And it set him back on their heels. He's like, no, no, no. all of my experience, everything I have learned in my past went into building that knife. That's, that that knife isn't just that one little brock of time. You're not paying for the the three hours it took me to to forge that out. Right. You, you're also paying for the 15,000 hours that it took for me to get to those three hours. Right. And that's a brilliant mindset. He's a, one of, probably one of the best designers I've met. For a youngster. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I look back at at, at the time I've been in this business and I'm absolutely amazed. Number one, I'm still alive. And number two, that I'm still doing it. I'm still here. And I had a a young guy in my shop. He he called me up out of the blue and I I wasn't going to take any more people in my shop until after Blade Show. Laura's got a little bit of health issue stuff going on. We got to handle. And um, so I was just going to take some time off and I'm going to go over to uh, Hawaii and hang out with Neil for a few days for go see Huda's birthday, his second birthday, his son, and uh, just relax a little bit and get some time off. But I wasn't going to take anybody else. And this young guy called me very polite, homeschooled. You could tell it by talking to him. And uh, he said, okay, is there any way I can get in? Uh, and I was just before telling him no. And he said, well, I'm 15. Is that going to be a problem? I said, you're in. Yeah. I said, yeah, come on. And he said, you're, you're kidding. I said, no, come on. And I, let me tell you something. I had to keep looking at him. His dad dropped him off. His dad is a traveling minister, and he goes all over the place. The kid's got a mobile knife shop, and he's good. He he had some really nice stuff there. I mean, it. It's, it's, it needs some work, but it's coming. And uh, I had to keep looking at it. I thought I was talking to a midget. I mean, <laughs> he, he's a little guy, but he was absolutely ahead of me on everything. And he was he was mentally ahead. And I, that was so refreshing to me and mannerly and just such a polite guy. And uh, I was doing some really cool stuff. And he's really wanting to learn. I had him running that big air hammer and doing all kinds of stuff. I would never put somebody on that wasn't pretty skilled. And he he, he was just enthusiastic and right there, just had a ball with him. 
and I'm, I'm glad I spent the time. I told him to go discover something and share it with me. <laughs> uh, if you were if you were starting out, to, well, not starting. If you were going to make that that full time leap today, knowing what you do over the last couple of years, what what would you what would your advice be to you? My advice be is do not do it unless your work is interfering with you making money with your knives. That's absolutely the advice I would give. It, once you turn that from a hobby into a job, it changes the thing. I've seen dozens of great makers. I mean, super talented people bury themselves in orders and stuff because it's a cushion. And then they wind up with five years worth of orders, which they go, all right, five years worth of orders. And now they're making stuff that they don't want to make anymore because it's stacked up on them or, or the worst sin of all is taking deposits. And then that guy that has paid you money owns you. And he's calling you every day, won't know where his product is. And then things happen and you get sick or something happens, the kid gets sick or you have to move or you have to change locations and then you get behind and you never come out from under that wheel. It's very difficult to come back from that. I tell people be extremely cautious unless you've got the clientele lined up and and they're willing to buy whatever you make and you, you're a free agent to make what you want to make, then I wouldn't do it. If you're going to start a business, it's like I tell people about their knives. Unless you're going to sell that business, your name needs to be on it. You know, if you're building a an, an empire to pass along or sell somebody, how many exploding crow forges can there be? <laughs> you know, how are they going to know that's you? I've got some famous friends that use a little symbol, and and I guarantee you, you can show it to anybody in the quote TV crew crowd now, and they won't know who they are. Uh, wasn't because the name's not on. I think it was Loveless that had a whole speech about putting your name on it because somebody might have your knife and they love it and they want another one, but they don't know what the heck a upside down crane is. Yeah. Put your name on it so they can yeah, find you. Exploding crow. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least initials or something that denotes that you. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've I've uh, I've seen that. That stuff goes. Well, they don't want to listen to you. No, uh, and and there are people that you know. It's just like when that I have a lot of people come to me and go, "Look at my knives and tell me what you think." I said, "Don't ask me that unless you're dead serious." Uh, Ethan and uh, and I've had them come, and there's two different types of people, and you'll see them. You've seen them. You've both seen them. They'll come show you the knives, and they either want to be patted on the head and told they're wonderful, or or they're actually wanting to improve their work. And uh, so I always ask them, I said, unless you're serious, don't ask that question because everything I'm fixing to tell you is subjective. It's my view of what could help you. It's my view. It may not help you, you know, but I'll be glad to give you my view. And then if you want to discard it when you get down the road, that's fine. I, I love but that's, uh, I love yeah. Ethan's response of, do you want me to tell you what I like about this knife or do you want me to critique it? Right. He's good. And <laughs> yeah. And if, if you can take the critique, if you ask for the critique and you can take it, um, he will respect you a whole lot more than just wanting to hear what he likes about mm -hmm. your knife. Right. 
and I, I'm I don't like hurting people's feelings, but I've, I've got friends of mine, people that I cherish as friends. I never talk about their knife, and uh, because they don't want to listen, you know. And it's not that I'm the sole authority on it by any means, but uh, one guy years ago he came to me and says. Uh, what do you think? I said, well, you need to do this, this, this. Yeah, but I like to make them like that. I said, okay. Then why'd you ask? Fine. <laughs> um, where should a, where should a young maker start? Like what are, um, what are some, Take a class. Well, and what are some fundamental techniques? Like this is, this is step one. This is your foundational education. This is what you need to have before you think about growing. All right. This is what I tell Anybody that asked me that, and uh, it forging is fine, but it adds an infinite amount of complication to your work. If you want to learn to fit and finish, you find a knife you like, and you make enough of them where you can make that thing in your sleep and get it as perfect as it can be made. Learn to fit and finish first, and then add the complexity to it. Um, and for design, if uh. If some young maker is standing in front of you with a blank sheet of paper, um, do you have any guidance on on how they should start the design process, or or just kind of a rule? Yeah, just find find something. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. How many you know? You, there, I've seen posters with knife shapes on them. There's only so many ways you can shape a knife, and and then after time, when you get good enough, your finished work will provide the variance it's like bob loveless and then the other thing is the story the story's more important than the knife it uh there was a guy named phil hartsfield he was out in california he's dead now and uh back in the 80s and he would take a flat bar a2 and grind a chisel grind on it and one of those fake uh, katana points on it and he treat that thing and dip it in uh, wrapped the handle in uh, paracord and dip it in epoxy, and he had people standing in line fighting over him for $8,000 a piece because he had some Japanese movie star cut a soft helmet with it. And it was on the cover of Blade magazine. That was a big deal. Now it isn't because he got 25 followers on Instagram. <laughs> it's just because that was the old Blade magazine cover. If you got on the cover, it's good. But now that cover's worth you know, it's, it's 30 days worth of advertising because there's another one coming kind of thing. And and so that's what people get caught up in that. How do I get to be famous? Well, you don't get to be famous. You earn it. You show up. You go to shows and you participate and you you run with the, run with the big dogs on the porch and that kind of stuff. And then you do good work and, you, and your word has to mean something. Ain't nothing will kill you better than bad business practice. It'll do you in. And I, I like to say you don't get famous. Your work gets famous. Yeah, exactly, <clears throat> because nobody really cares about you. That's what Schmidt told me early on. I showed up up there, and I was doing multi-bar blades, Merovinian patterns in the blades, because I was basically following in Daryl Myers' footsteps. And it was about 79 it was pre it was pre electro etching because I was hand stamping the blades and I still got pictures of some of it. But I showed up with these knife and uh, had these patterns and I showed them to Schmidt and Schmidt was always kind of a guy. Him and Fogg and Jimmy Fikes were kind of my spirit guides in those days and Pendray 
and uh, he and I always rode together. And uh, I show him show him that stuff, and he says, "Well, who are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm Steve Schwarzer." And he says, "You know, if your knives ever catch up with your steel, you'll be a force to be reckoned with." Because <laughs> in that days, nobody was doing anything but ladder pattern and a, a slow twist. They call it maiden hair because they couldn't twist it tight enough to do anything. And none of it that they were making would cut because the standard was one quarter inch piece of 01 and two pieces of mild steel of 512 layers. Well, you weld that up and guess what? You've dropped the carbon level to about 1045. Yeah. And that's just, you know, well, we don't have to temper our Damascus. That's because you can't, if you do it all, it won't cut nothing. It'll roll up like an old cat wanting his belly rub. Anyway, we learned. Pretty, pretty early on, you had to add a bunch of extra carbon in there. Oh, that reminds me. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. They, uh, I remember back. They would the the old guys would go, "Well, you're 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 uh, you're you're not supposed to weld anything but O one and mild steel kind of stuff." And we went nonsense anyway. Pendre made some blades and he put Vasco wear centers D two and mild steel and he welded up three blades out of it. And uh, so he didn't have any way to heat treat it at his shop at the time. And I had a graphite bath in my shop that I was heat treating in. But I had a little old furnace, a little box furnace with a tray in it. And he said, would you heat treat these plates for me? I said, sure. And so he brought them over and he spent, you know, that was, nobody had done it. And this was like the, anyway, I put them in that graphite. I plugged that heater in. It didn't have a thermostat on it. It just ran wide open, and you had to pull the plug out of the wall to slow it down. Anyway, so I go in there on the couch, and I go to sleep. I fell asleep with that thing running, and this thing's sitting on the top of my wife at that time's uh, washing machine. And I wake up. I'm sitting there. And I said, damn, I wonder what's burning. It smells hot. And I realized I'd forgot those damn things. I ran out there, and that box is glowing red on the outside. <laughs> I went, oh, crap. And I I didn't unplug it. I just flipped the door open, not thinking, and the coils went. They just burst into flames and were gone. And I'm looking in there, and this graphite is boiling and rolling and boiling. And I'm, oh, my gosh. I went, I pull the plug out. I get a pair of tongs. I reach in there, and these things are hanging down like old limp icicles all welded together, dripping steel. <laughs> and, I, oh, my God. Anyway, I shoved them back into graphite and just shut the door. And I didn't have the courage to call Alfred. About three days later, he calls me up. He says, are my blades finished? I said, oh, yeah. Oh, they're done. (laughs) (laughs) He never asked me to eat, treat another thing for him. I don't blame him. But (laughs) that was one of those little sidebar things I get tickled about. I think about it. It wasn't funny at the time, but it is now. Well, and some of that, this is the only way to do Damascus is the the danger of, I mean, one of the most dangerous phrases in the world is that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, yeah. I'm a big believer in question me, question everything. Like, if they say it can't be done, prove it. Yeah, absolutely. The smartest move you can make is to go deal with somebody that's isolated somebody that doesn't have anybody telling them, well, that, that you can't do it like that, or you're not supposed to do it like that. It's nonsense. That's, uh, that's a, exactly the reason I went to visit the sky in South Texas. 
to watch his carving because he's done it for years without anybody telling him what to do. And I wanted to see the technique that he had developed uh, being isolated like that. And he's trained two or three people. I mean, there's some of his students are doing some amazing carving work. One, and I, I really like what he does. Like I said, it's, it's not my design work, but it, the technique that he's developed is unusual. And, and, and I really paid attention. I really appreciate the time with him, too. He was, he was very gracious to let me come spend some time with him. And uh, so I'll, I'll I'll apply all that to my work as I go along. It uh, it's opened a couple of windows for me. It's like I had um, Logan uh, out at uh, Coal Iron. He built that fifty uh, ton. Uh, Nathan Allum chipped in on that thing. Built that fifty ton press with a computer on it. Man, that opened some real serious windows. I've got some new die sets for it and doing. You know, I'm not going to stop. I've got stuff to do. <laughs> One of the advantages of being an outsider in an industry is you don't know it can't be done, so you do it. Exactly. Nobody's telling you it can't be done. It's like I forged weld some uh, brass and nickel silver together, and that's supposed to be impossible. But I didn't know. I did it in a coal forge. Made a piece about the size of a quarter, and I put it on a knife. And uh I didn't know. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do it. You've you've done fixed blades and you've done folders. Do you have a preference? I like I like both. Uh, you'll sell ten folders for one fixed blade. I don't like big knives anymore because it's like sanding on a football field. Finishing takes too long. But I want to do. I want to go to smaller knives, carved knives, a little more intricate knives. I'm going to make some more folders. Matter of fact, I bought one of my Swiss blades that I made in the 90s back because I forgot how I made the thing. <laughs> it's got a bunch of little parts in it. So I bought it and took it all apart and took a bunch of pictures. But I'm going to make some more of those. And, um, yeah, I'm, I've got some pattern welding technique. I just had um, my buddy in South Africa, Henning Wilkerson, tune me up on some uh, pattern welding technique he's been working on. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I helped him. And uh, when I went over there, I flew over there to watch him work because he, he is, he is a genius. There's a guy who's got he thinks in 3D and he acts in 3D. He's got both sides of his brain actually function. Most people have one side, but he he came out of the gunsmithing industry, and the guy's this brilliant joiner of metals and other materials. And he's got, uh, he, he uses primitive machinery, but he's just an amazing artist and uh, just a jam-up guy. And I went over to teach him pattern welding, and, and uh, now we're exchanging, you know, back and forth. I built that shooting scene uh, with the man and the dog and the birds, and that inspired him years ago to push uh, push his window open. And then he and I are doing one with a uh, Cape Buffalo and a guy. Oh, wow. Anyway, we already got the Buffalo and the guy welded. I'm waiting on him to do his part, like make a really nice knife out of it. I hope you hear <laughs> that inning. Anyway, <laughs> uh, what's, that's, a, that's, that's the fun stuff. Sharing is the fun stuff. Uh, I'm going to kind of two parts, and I can come back to it if we get distracted. But what is, uh, what's some of your, your must-have equipment in the shop? Like what's... I mean, the obvious stuff, 
anvils, hammers, we understand that, but, but what's your, some of your, I got to have it in the shop equipment. Are you talking about for a new maker or somebody like me? Uh, let's do both. Um, for a new maker. Okay. For a new maker, you need a press or a hammer. If, if you got a choice between a press and a hammer and it's a little bitty hammer and a bigger press, go with the press. You'll get more work done. A hammer has its own place, uh, but it needs to be heavy enough. Either one of them has to be heavy enough to work the size of material that you intend to, to, to do. It's critical. The other thing is build a decent forge to uh, work your material with and, and do a little research. I mean, I use forced air forges on everything. I don't use Venturi forges unless it's in somebody else's shop. Now, Jason has them. He uses them, and I've used them up there, but I took him one that will melt steel, and he won't run the thing. <laughs> and uh, and Neil has got one that Peter Burt designed the burners on it, and it took a, it'll take a NASA rocket scientist to tune the damn thing, but it will weld anything that goes in the door. Now, I use a little Don Fogg-style burner on mine, or I've, I've got a friend of mine, uh, Sergio, uh, that built me some ribbon burners, and I used a ribbon burner on a big one. Now, that thing takes a little longer to heat because of volume, but I can weld 40, 50-pound chunk in there with no wow. problem. It'll, it'll weld it up. It's got enough, uh, you know, re- retort and stuff in it to make it heat. Mm-hmm. But uh, I use the smaller forge on most stuff because it heats quick. Right. And for for me, I've got a 118-ton press. I've got a 50-ton press. I've got die sets. Uh, you can make that stuff. Uh, it's like I use Beaumont grinders. I've been using Beaumont grinders. I bought one 25 years ago, and they and I'll just blatantly tell you, they sponsor me, and they help me with some machines. But I like the machines, or I wouldn't use them. And they track, and they last forever, and they're simple. They're probably not the gee whiz. You know, they're not a Ferrari. They're a, a damn John Deere tractor that will crank every time you push the button and do a good job. And you can fix it in the field. Yeah, that thing will it, it'll 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 do the work. A, a, a good two by seventy two grinder is the first tool anybody should buy with a variable speed if they're going to finish knives. Yep. That is the number one tool. A two by seventy two because it's the industry standard. And if you can't have but one machine, get one that tilts over so that you've got access to the horizontal as well as the vertical grind on it. And they, mm-hmm. they work good. There's a lot of guys out there making machines now. There's some really good ones out there. But, uh, that's the first thing. And then once you decide what kind of knives you're going to make, if you're going to make folding knives, you need a knee mill. Don't waste your money on a little tiny mill. Get you a decent knee mill. You can buy a used one that'll work fine. Uh, you need a surface grinder that didn't beat to death. And if you're going to make pocket knives, that's that's two tools you have to have for that. Uh, can you make them without them? Yes. It's terrible. It's an awful thing to do to yourself. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, just because you can. I mean, I've got friends of mine that hand carve everything, and I'm, I'm not doing that. If I can find a way to put it in a mold and blow it up and make a part, that's what I'll do. I could never make money if I had to. If I had to hand shape every part of a folding knife, I'd never be able to make money at it. No, you can't make money at it. You have to do it because you want to punish yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you got to hate yourself. 
You got to hate yourself yeah, like you're going to hand sand magna cut kitchen knives. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's a no. That's a, that's yeah. a no. That's, a, it, that's what I did the whole day today. Oh, <laughs> uh, God bless you, son. You're going straight to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ain't doing that. I want to finish it. Everybody, I, I get tickled. People, they'll come to me and I'll have machinery. I've got one thing, everything that's ever been made to make a knife with. And, uh, People come to me and they go, well, that's not traditional. I said, wait a minute. I said, I can make my hammer from dirt. I can make my own drill bits. I can make my own files. Do I want to? No, but I can actually do it. So you tell me it's not traditional? At some point, everything was not traditional. And then then the next phrase is, what is it? What, what is it about go away you don't understand? You're using metal instead of rocks? That's not traditional. <laughs> I, I use the rocks to make the metal. Yeah. I actually got bog iron laying in my yard just in case. <laughs> That's a, they, funny. There's a group down here in Florida. Just see that the bog iron in Florida and all up the East Coast is a bacterial secretion. Really? It, uh, it's, it's nucleated by bacteria. And, and they, they, it's a concretion made from those guys. They call it, I think it's limonite. And uh, anyway, it, if you don't take all the ore out, it'll grow back over a few thousand years. But uh, that's where all the uh, uh, iron and stuff came on the East Coast and England and everywhere else was out of the bog. And it's all bacterial yeah. uh, concretions. Hmm. Pretty neat right. stuff. And not all of it's iron ore. They've got iron ore up in Georgia. They've got iron ore all over Africa. But all the bog iron and stuff that was used all up in Scandinavia and all this all caused by bacteria. Okay. That's the end of the show. I've, I've learned enough that, that, that was the last <laughs> thing I am now full. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go cut my throat and hang upside down. Um, <laughs> what would you say defines your style as a maker? Hmm. I, I, I think it's the influence of people on me. Probably the carving, uh, the steel patterning is. It's a, I don't know that thing ate me up for years. I, I I mean I went down that rabbit hole. I I couldn't get enough of it, and I wanted to know how you can make something happen. I've I always I've been a problem solver my whole life. But uh, like I said, when I went to school, I'd find grades I liked, and I'd just stay in them because the education system didn't know what to do with somebody like me. I, like my dad used to tell everybody, well, my youngest son, he's pretty steady in the boat, but Steve, he carries his brain around in his hip pocket because <laughs> I was a scatterbrain. I couldn't focus on anything. And then once I learned to focus, then I went around everybody, all the naysayers like they were parked at the, uh, Oh, I, that, uh, the influence, I don't know, my style, it just feels good. If it looks good and it feels good in the hand, uh, that's that's where it comes from. I want it to function. Everything has to be a tool first and then an art piece. Uh, do I like the art? Yeah. Am I pretty good at it? Yeah. Uh, but it's taken a long time. And uh, actually, my carving was better when I was younger. And uh, now I'm trying to get those skill sets back because I've let them set in the field. It's like letting a seat, uh, your field grow up. you got to mow it back down and plow it under to get it going again. And that was part of this Texas trip was to get that fired up. But I don't know. It's easy to pick my knives out. 
So you got to unlearn all the stuff that you've taught yourself that was wrong and go back to to where you were. Not really. You just add you add to the pile. But the problem mm-hmm. when you get my age, you got so much stuff in the filing cabinet it's hard to sort through. <laughs> you yeah. forget how you did stuff, and then you got to do it again. Uh, I've heard I've heard a couple of older makers say I I don't make a, a knife nearly as good as I used to when I'm younger. I can't see as good as I used to, and then. I can't hold anything as steady as I used to. So, yeah, uh, that's something. To, My dad uh, is not is probably not the the person that came up with the, the the quote or the saying, but he's the first person I heard it from. And it's uh, I'm not the man I used to be and I probably never was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've had friends of mine. Well, Tim Hancock was a friend of mine and he got Parkinson's and it killed him finally. But he could shake a grind better on a knife than I could grind one with a fixture because he had the talent and the skill sets to do it. And, uh, I learned more about grinding when I was over there, I was, quote, teaching, hinting what to do. I was over there <laughs> watching what he was doing. And, and, and when you get those guys that are isolated like that, they develop a whole different way of doing things. And I, anytime I see something new, I'll grab it. I have no shame in myself at all learning. You know, I've I'm, I'm never put myself in the box of being at the pinnacle. Mm. A couple times when I was a young man, I'm in my 30s and 40s, I thought that I had pretty good skill sets. But the older I get, I find out very fast. I don't know near what I should know. And that's why everything is an adventure and it's a study and it's, this is a gathering of information. Uh, you, speaking of the, the studying and the learning, you have trained some of the most incredible smiths. Now, I mean, certainly the next generation. Uh, do you have a, a, like a formal training program? Do you have a, like a, a formal school? Mm. Yeah, I do. I, I teach it at my shop and also teach, and other people's job. It's just like I did that thing up there. It was uh, at, the, at the Midwest. It was fun. If I'd have had some tools, it would have been better, but you work with what you got. And so you never downgrade that. It's just training people. I wrap myself around what their goal is. Mm-hmm. That's why I rarely ever do classes with more than two people. And usually it's just one-on-one. I don't, because I, my attention has to be exactly where they are. So somebody comes to my shop and says, let's do this. That's what we do. Charlie Lionheart showed up down at my shop last year, and he walks in, and out of the blue, I didn't know he was coming. And he said, All right, I'm here for the day. And I said, okay, what do you want to do? And he pulls out this primrose tiling pattern. And I looked at it, and I just shorted out. I was, like, dumbfounded. I said, how many days you got, Charlie? He said, oh, just a day. And so we started cutting parts at 8.30 in the morning. At 4.30 that afternoon, we had all the parts cut and fitted and ready to weld, and we made a weld on it and got it done. So rather that than was ha- a challenge. So rather than have a, a, a fixed program, every student does this, this, and this, no, you you, you it. tailor it to the student. 
to the student. It okay. knows exactly what that person needs and within reason. So some of them, you know, they, they've got this unrealistic expectation of what happens in the, in the forging business. And it, uh, it, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. But the other thing I have to be really cautious about is because I've done so much of it, I have to really think through the process to teach so that I don't miss anything. Yeah. If you're teaching somebody to drive, you don't think about when you put the turn signal on and how hard you're mashing the brake and steering the car and, and uh, looking out for wet spots in the road and all that. You do that by rote because you've done it for all your life, just about driving. The same way with forging steel and shaping stuff and uh, making steel stick together and that sort of thing. I've done so much of it, I have to slow down and go through that that thought process to get to here. And I've, like I said, when you've done as many patterns as I've done, trying to remember how you get there is problematic sometimes. So sometimes we make new patterns. <laughs> if we forget to make a turn or roll something over or retile it a certain way, then we make the new thing out of it. But uh, that's I get a kick out of watching them develop and then watch them handle the tools. If you had a brand new maker, just a a blank sheet of paper, a, a, a block of clay, where would you tell them to start? Or where would you recommend that they start? Buy a 2x72 variable speed grinder and a pile of belts and design a knife and make that thing until they can do it in their sleep. If they that's if they truly want to start and learn, they need to learn what design is and fit and finish is, and then start adding the complexity in it. You you can't make Zoloft sword of the night chapter on your as your first blade, or you'll never succeed. You've got to set realistic goals. And then there are people that are naturally talented. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them out there. There's young guys, the wizards, absolute pattern welding wizards and, and uh, design guys. Kurt Hallen, uh, of course, anybody that came out of Jason's shop is, is way ahead of the game. And uh, uh, Salem Straub, I mean, there's a bunch of them out there. Seth Lopez, uh, young guy that came in he forged uh, shaped all those patterns i mean there's of course will stelter will and i've worked together all the time he's like one of my kids we work together and of course there's neil Kamimura. neil and i are real close we're family close guy and he's a machine that guy anybody keep up with him is boy they're gonna be stepping fast he's damn good at what he does and he's quick but he works at it he's earned everything he's done he's uh, actually pulled himself up for nothing he's probably had the fastest growth in the knife knife industry of anyone i've ever met and he's really good and he's a good business guy so start with the nuts and bolts the be able to straight lines fit and finish and once you can do the nuts and bolts then you can start design create your voice exactly get into that sort of thing all right yeah everybody starts out wanting to reinvent the wheel and they don't need to they need to learn the basics if it's like a martial art or or power lifting or racing or 
whatever you do, if you don't have a good foundation under you, everything you build on top of it is not going to be stable. And then stock removal is an easy way to go ahead and start focusing on your fit and finish. It's the quickest way. Quickest way. It's the oh. quickest way. It's not an easy way. It's the quickest way. It's because you've got a chance to do repeatability in a. If you're hand forging every blade, there's no two of them alike, and the grinding will be different every time. Yeah, yeah, your skill sets will improve if that's. I'm not dissuading anybody from doing that, but if they want to learn to fit and finish, they will do stock removal first. Some of the mm-hmm. best forge blade guys out there started in stock removal. Um, why did you get started teaching? Legacy more than anything. Last mm-hmm. few years. It's, uh, I'd done all this stuff uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I was, a, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how to explain it. I did, I just didn't want the body of work to be lost. Yeah. I never would look, uh, Smith warned me about it early on back in the, in the eighties. He said, you're going to hear stuff. And, uh, of course I was internationally recognized in magazine in 81 and uh, taught in Europe and uh, Germany, and I've been all over the damn place. Anyway, it uh, never believe your own bullshit. That's <laughs> what it boils down to. Uh, if you get to thinking you are somebody, well, then you're not because you've really just gotten started in the learning process. And I was always afraid to look back at what I had accomplished. And uh, so a while back, I've been year and a half or almost two years ago, I had Laura go through all my archive stuff. I was in 150 different periodicals, magazines and papers and stuff, different ones, not just blade, 150 Blade magazine, but 150 different periodicals, over 50 hardback books. That's how much stuff is there. And I had no idea. I didn't have a clue. I remember some of the books, but I would never allow myself to look at that because I was afraid it would make me stop creating. And I would get to that point where, okay, you've reached the end of the race. It's time to quit. I'm going to die in my shop. I don't intend to quit. I have things to do. I've got ideas that I want to complete, and I'm going to make that happen. Uh, what do you look for in a student? Somebody that's willing to learn and they're not stuck. Uh, you can, I usually interview them before I let them come because I don't want them wasting their money and my time. It, uh, that's what it boils down to. And I'm getting more and more selective because the older I get, the less I can go. Now, when Neil was here, we worked 10 days, but we were working 12, 14 hour days. And it took me about two weeks to get over it. <laughs> it's like following a machine around. <laughs> he, he was unbelievable. And, uh, and, fast and good at what he does and uh yeah it's a, it, i can do i've done a week i did a week out at kilroy's but i was i was circulating between a bunch of people now i can do that in in that situation because i'm mentally prepared for it and then uh, one of the guys that i work with he's He's a meteorite expert, and uh, he and I have been friends for over 40 years. He took my class, and he wanted to work on hormone stuff. And uh, so we were working on that, learning how to set the steel up and 
the first three blades we made, a, they shattered along the temper line. And then we figured that I was shocking them too hard trying <laughs> to get that structure to change. And we got it worked out and uh, made a beautiful blade out. Uh, with a, I mean, it was probably the nicest one I've done. Anyway, I handled the thing. I gave it to him because he let me stay at his house. But, uh, but they were, there's one kid in there, Isaiah, and uh, a curious forge. He made he he made a double jelly roll uh, feather pattern with spacer bars in it, and he and I, I was okay with him until I looked in his notebook, and then I wanted to kill him. <clears throat> it looked like if imagine yourself opening one of those handwritten calligraphy uh, mid sixteenth century Bibles with all the little drawings in the margins in color. Not only were they in color, they were all to the perfect mean. Mm. He had a, a little measuring tool there that had the golden <laughs> ratio on it, and every one of those drawings was to that ratio. And I went, oh, my. And he talked to me, and he was like mentally in places. He was like way up here, and I'm trying to figure out where he is. And he could literally look at that mass of steel and figure out how far it would go in a blade. I've never been able to do that. I always make this big giant block of steel, and then I, I tear off pieces of it until it gets to the size I need it. And uh, but he could see that mentally, and I was like, "Wow, look at this!" And then I had another fellow there, and uh, man, he wanted to do some stuff, and we got it done. And uh, had one kid, and he had a tension span of a hamster. <laughs> he was a good kid, but he couldn't focus. And it was a, it's a learning disability. And so you have to learn to be patient with uh, the, the people that, that do that. And he really, he turned out a nice piece of pattern work with a big old bear in it. We did a, we did a, uh, a printed uh, bear and uh, put that in there and we'd be working on it. And he'd disappear and he'd come back and I said, where have you been? Oh, I'm making a throwing spoon. So you're what? I'm making a throwing swing. I said, what about this, you know, 10-pound block of Damascus you got in? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Anyway, and he, he did that like four or five times. But when we got down the last day, he had his block of steel done. But it, it you have to figure out where they are. And mm -hmm. once you figure out where they are, it's easy to deal with them. <clears throat> as long as they're, they're excited about the work, I don't care. Um, Make it happen. Clearly, face to face is is going to be the most effective form of instruction. But uh, are, do you have videos or articles, or there there are other places people could go to, uh, well, to learn from you? Yeah, they're all over. You just type my name in on YouTube, and there'll be a bunch of it come up. Um, but uh, I don't. I have a YouTube channel, but I hadn't put anything on it yet <clears throat> because that's a whole different art form. I got a friend of mine in Louisiana. It was in the movie business. That's what he did. He made movies. He's really good, and he's a dang good knife maker. His name's Tony Severio. And, uh, anyway, he's been kind enough to he's teaching me how to edit, and uh, it's 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 a uh, that thing is a science unto itself. Making the videoing what you're doing is the easy part. It's the editing that eats you up, as you well know. You guys do it all the time with these podcasts and stuff. It's a full time job for somebody. Yeah. Uh, well, and people don't appreciate how long it takes to set up the shot. 
how many times you sometimes you have to t- do the shot three, four, five times to get it right because you did something wrong or the lighting was bad. I mean, there's somebody told me it's five hours of setup for every one hour of actual product you get. Mm-hmm. And they could very well be right, but with me, because of the way my head works, I can't do it twice. And you guess my wife, when I'm writing, I write, I wrote for Blade Magazine for over 10 years and still write a good bit. <clears throat> but if I sit down to write, then I can't be disturbed. If, if, if a bird flies by or there's a noise or somebody knocks on the door, my head will reset and I will never, ever be able to get back where I was. And then I'm angry. Yep. Not at whoever did it. I'm angry at myself because I can't set my mind back where I was. It's like <laughs> Shackelford, I'll tell you, I, when I write a story for him, he gets the world's longest paragraph and then he has to break it all up. <laughs> um, uh, Clay Alders, I've done some stuff with him and he laughed. He kindly laughingly refers to uh, my rough drafts as a word bank. there's a random collection of words that are all yours. We've just got to get them in the proper order. There you go. There you go. Make it tell a story. Look, you can have order. You can have spelling. I mean, (laughs) you're not getting both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mm. Yeah, that's good stuff. How has the, how has the availability of information changed? Uh, Oh, it's incredible. I mean, there's, like Elon Musk says, you you can learn anything at a very high level for free. You, all you got to do is be able to do the research. And overall, would you say it's helped the industry? Yes, tremendously. I mean, they, it it's helped in a lot of ways, but it's also there. There are a couple of types of people in the industry. And it, not to disparage anyone, but there are people that create and there are people that copy. Simple as that. Some people don't have design sense and they, they do that. That's fine. Nothing wrong with it. But I always like creating. The creating is uh, I, I made a pattern one time and I, I, a, a fellow used it and won a big award and I got no credit for it. And I was young and stupid and if I'd have kept my mouth shut, Everything had been fine, but no, I had to rise to the bait. Anyway, I was a little incensed by it, and I checked him on it. And, uh, of course, he denied it. And this is pre-internet. This was fax time. I got six feet of denial off my fax machine. Anyway, if I'd have kept my mouth shut, everything would be fine. I saw him three years later. He still had the blade. And when he showed it to me, you couldn't tell what it was. It looked like a Rorschach test. And I went... I've been in anguish for three years over this. And I thought, boy, am I stupid. And so I told a friend of mine about it. He's a, he's a dear friend of mine. Uh, he was an appellate attorney for about 40 years. Steve Van Voorhees is also a good knife maker. And he said, there's a poem by Rudyard Kipling that fits this. And I said, well, give it to me. It's the only poem I could ever remember. Because they asked me how I did it. I gave him the scripture text. You keep your light a-burning a little ahead of the next. They copied all they could follow, but they couldn't copy my mind, so I left them sweating and stealing a year and a half. 
behind. And what it means is if you create, it doesn't matter about the old idea. You've always got new material. You've always got something new to focus on. But it doesn't matter what went before. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Go on. Make something else. And that's what I do. That's, uh, it is a bigger man than me that can, uh, that can consistently live that. Cause, uh, I, uh, I, I still struggle a little bit with, I don't mind you doing it, but give credit to the people that came before you. Well, I, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. And it, it, it also is a little caustic with me when they don't, but it just happens. Yeah. I see my stuff out there, the 3d stuff out there all over the place. And there are a few well-known guys that are given credit for it. And there's some other guys with a lot of uh, stuff going on that are not giving credit for anything to anybody, but they're not treating me any different than they are anybody else. Cause they're, they're publishing all these other guys work like it, they, they own it and they don't own it. But anyway, it's in public domain. They can do what they like. I, I'm too busy. What, how I deal with it is I don't let anything negative stick to me. If it becomes negative, I get rid of it because I don't need that dragging me back. What you want is a, it's like we're doing. All of us, all three of us, are we're traveling in a path right now. We're pulling each other along, helping each other out, doing what we're doing. But if we got some guy that comes in trolling from the side and he's digging you and, 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 and uh, digging Kyle and digging me, well, then he's, he's, he's put this electric probe in us. He's irritating us, and we've allowed it to happen. So what I do is I shed that off. I go, now you've lost the right to talk to me. You and I don't talk anymore, and see you back. I never call them out on it because the minute you call out one of those trolls, you validated the guy. I pretend they don't exist. And, and for me, they don't. Yeah, like I don't have time for negative stuff. I'm too busy having fun stuff. I don't want my fun stuff messed up with negative stuff. It ain't happening. Uh, got time for it. I, this was for me. This was a huge issue when I was starting out, and uh, things like Blade Forms were still kind of the the pinnacle of of industry as far as communication and information. But um, how do you? How do you sort out uh, fact from folktale with all the information that's out there? I don't look at it. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't. I mean, I I hear, did you hear? No, I didn't hear. It's just like, uh, you know, so one of the things that was kind of a peeve with me was that back in the day when they started doing canisters, well, they were doing them on the, on the, show and they were using white out in there and it was a mess now there's a there's an element in there that works if you allow that to dry which doesn't happen in three hour show then the titanium dioxide in there will let that canister peel mm. and I uh, say so I went just use white paint oh yeah it's got the same stuff in it and it costs three dollars a can. And I, and and I'll tell you where I learned that from 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 uh, Josh Plato is one of my students. He said, "Why don't you just use white paint?" And I said, "I don't know. Why don't I use white paint?" Anyway, that's who I learned it from, and I've been using it for a good number of years now. 
I had him down at my shop and I taught him to pattern weld and he went home and started doing laminates. Now he's making a fortune rebuilding giant machinery and big hydraulic cylinders and that kind of stuff. He's a Canadian guy, but he's a good dude. He is really sharp, 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 sharp. But he's the one that told me about the paint and I've been using it. And when I went to South Africa, I showed Henning, we were using the, uh, the foil to make the canisters come off. But they were already using uh, some kind of anti-siege or something that was keeping the can from sticking over there. But they were just being quiet about it. But it, I mean, there's every day somebody's coming up with something. that uh, you always see something new because there's so many bright young minds. That's the one thing good about all the people we have in the business now is there's really bright young people that are are coming and they're adding a lot they add a huge amount to the whole system where uh where are some good places to go for information uh inspiration like do you do you have a magazine certain books certain websites is there yeah i i, I do i don't do a lot of that but of course i've been married to blade magazine forever and i had done some work with knives illustrated but uh i don't know i anytime there's something in writing that's coming out it's uh somebody's doing a new process if i hear about it i start picking into it i'm i'm putting together an article now on the 3d stuff and also on uh peter burt is doing some clay mascus and he's mixing powder and and, uh, and some binders and making clay and doing complete blades cold and then centering them and making a product he's and i'm writing an article about it i fooled that clay when gary and i got together for a little while but i didn't follow up on it i made i made some some little pieces and parts but i didn't make any blades as far as i know peter burt did the first blades out of it and uh, on his Patreon, you can buy into there, and he'll give you a, a formula for it, and it it's pretty neat stuff. But that, that's the kind of stuff that excites me. And uh, of course, I follow the Woosh stuff because I was involved in that Woosh research early on. It was me and Pendre and Bob Joe, and all the early blades are Mark PJS, and I'm the S. Okay, and. Uh, I've got pictures of those blades, and then and, and then after Verhoeven and those guys got involved in it, and then I went on to make some stuff I could sell. You can't, you, I, you couldn't sell a woosh at the time, and Alfred was really into the research. He was a driving force behind all of it, and uh, got that done. And now there's quite a few people worldwide that are making woosh steel. Ray Rybar is as good as it gets. And he's really good. And, of course, Peter Burt's doing some in Hawaii. He regularly makes the stuff. And there, Nico Heinemann, a bunch of guys that are really fooling with it. I like it, and I make it once in a great while. I made some with Rybar when we were out teaching in California out at uh, Vincent Armenta's place. Out He's uh, they on the – they are the Chumach tribe and just mm. outside of Santa Barbara. And we went out there to teach. He's got a big board shop. He's got one of – every little giant hammer they ever made in there from 500 pounds down to a little heave hammer. <laughs> anyway, Ray ran that uh, 
school on antique metals and stuff in there. He's as good as it gets. And I learned probably as much there as I did the last 30 years fooling with Pendre and, and uh, them from Ray. And it's because he's got the testing equipment. He's not guessing. That's the other thing is a lot of these guys that are doing some of these antique metals and stuff, they're guessing at results. They're not, you know, they're, they're not quantifying guys, it. Ray's actually got the equipment, access to equipment to test everything to prove what it is, right down to the rare elements in it. That to me is that's useful. If if somebody wants wants help, they they I guess uh, a better way to ask this question is: What's your advice on how to approach a maker for help? Well, yeah, you just you, you just be honest. You go, hey, I'd, I'd like to learn about this. Do you have time? Can I pay you for your time? It's like. Um, I had a, a, a guy that he is a master at ancient air hammers, and I have one. And uh, I had a problem with it. And I knew that everybody in the world calls this guy on the phone and trying to bleed his time, and they don't want to pay him anything. They want, a, they want a cake recipe without paying for it. And so I called this guy up, and I said, listen, I said, I, I need help. What is your PayPal account? And he said, oh, you don't need to. I said, no, you don't understand. Your time is valuable, and I need it. What is your PayPal account? And he gave me a number. And I said, I'm going to start putting money in there, and you tell me when it's enough. <laughs> and so now I've got the guy on speed dial, and he talked me through. My hammer locked up, and I was able to get the thing apart. And uh, it's so funny. I had a student at the shop, oh, Justin Harrington, the Cyclops Forge. He's got one eye, but he's a good knife maker anyway. He was there working as a student and my hammer locked up. Now we can't make steel. And I said, man, I don't know what to do. I said, I'll give you your money back. And he said, no, when am I ever going to get a chance to, <laughs> to open up a Chambersburg and work on it again? This is part of the class. I went, okay. So anyway, we called my guy up and, and uh, he talked to me and told me how to fix it. And uh, we jerked the uh, ram out of it, took it all apart and fixed it, put it back together and it's running like new. But, that's the way you approach them is you their time is the only thing they can't get back and so you you try to compensate them for their time and if they say no i don't want it that's fine but it's you know what can i do to help you and to help defray the cost of this i i've always been well not surprised but when you start with the can i pay you I am always surprised how much more you get. Like if the the however much you pay that person, almost every time you will get that much value and more. Well, it's because that you've recognized they have value, and that's an important emotion. It's, that's that's the opposite of being rejected. When somebody yeah. comes to you and shows you that you have value and you're, you're needed, then that is a payday in itself. And if you, if you, if you, you know, like, it's like rejection. It's just like somebody says, man, I ain't got time. That's why you go away. Yeah. How does that make you feel? You know, that you weren't worth talking to. <laughs> and uh, the other time is people just call you up and want to talk and they can't, you can't do it. And I tell them now, I said, I, I'll consult with you 
on this kind of stuff for $100 an hour, and we'll talk as long as you want. And well, I don't get many phone calls on that panel. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a fact. I have to work. If I'm not, if I'm talking to you, I'm not working. Exactly. And speak- exactly. And if people would realize that and be a little more courteous, it would work better. Speaking of the work, and there's there's the old joke about uh, you know, how do you make a million dollars as a knife maker? You, know, you start with two. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, and we've told people you don't get into knife making to make money. Um, but if you're going, even if you're going to do it as a hobby, it's an expensive hobby. Like you, you need to have an approach of offsetting your cost. How do you, how do you approach the business side of it? Personally, I don't have any problem selling my stuff, but I've developed that over years and years and years. For a new person, knife making is the only hobby they'll get ever get in it that will pay for itself. Fishing boats don't make you money. <laughs> you know, racing doesn't make you any money. I can tell you from personal experience. Yeah, uh, you were every, racing and you had a boat. That's like the two biggest money holes you can get, and you managed to put them together. That's it. I was racing boat. <laughs> yeah, ain't nothing better than doing 100 miles an hour in an airboat because you're right on the edge of death. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Everybody says, how can you do that old as you are? I said, it's the old man's job. You just sit in the seat and mash the gas and hang on. Yeah. But actually, there's a lot to it, or you, or you will be dead. That's why they only run 400 feet, because after that, they start flying. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you get to the point of being able to make, uh, make knives efficiently without, without killing your spirit? Without, how do you find that balance point between being able to work at a rate that it's worth your time without turning it into production. I, I don't know. I, I just make what I want to make and I sell it. it uh, that's the way that works. And if you get good enough, that happens, but it ain't going to happen in the beginning. It's going to take a little while to build a clientele and build a name. Uh, your collectors come and go. Uh, uh, everything cycles, you know, it's everyday carry is the hot thing. And then next month it's buoy knives. And uh, there was a time when only the high end art stuff, the twenty, thirty thousand, hundred thousand dollar pieces were selling. And then all of a sudden that market dropped out. Now I know people that were, they were sitting on $200,000 worth of knives. They couldn't sell because the market went away. Uh, it's fickle. Um, and it's even more fickle now because the, the trade on information is instantaneous. It's, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's like trying to watch what's trending on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. How do you build that up? And it's like, I watched one kid. He had like 600,000 followers on TikTok and he kept screwing up with their algorithms and they booted him. He's gone. Had to start over. And you can't get that fire built again. It's like getting a part in a movie. Lightning usually strikes once, unless you become a generator. 
you have to generate that lightning. And you do that by constantly improving and developing yourself and doing new stuff and participating. There's very few people in my age group doing what I'm doing, almost none, because they're not driven by it. You've got to love it. If you don't love it, you need to find something else to do because it's not a fun thing to do if you don't love it. It's, uh, you know, it's go get a job as a fishing guide or something that's fun. It's, uh, because it won't support you unless you work at it. And, and if you don't love it, you're not going to work at it hard enough. That's it. You've got to love it. And it can't be a job. If it's a job, you could go hire out and walk them to Walmart or whatever. That's all. No, I ain't doing that. I like the freedom of being able to get up and go do what I want to do every day. And what I want to do is go to the shop. And I like it in there. I, you know, I've got a five-ton air conditioner in there. I jack that thing wide open. And uh, the building's got 32 uh, uh, insulation in the ceiling and 16 in the sidewalls. It's double-walled building. It's Faraday cage. And you can heat that thing with a mass and cool it with an ice cube. And I run five tons of AC in there. And I push the forge outside and I light it. And I go heat my seal up and I run back in the cold to hammer it. <laughs> it wasn't always like that. My last shop, it was 130 degrees in there in the summertime, and the old dry rafters would drip sap on you, and it burned. It, you know, say so I earned that thing. I built it, and um, I built it around what I wanted. I even put an elevator in there because I didn't want to carry stuff upstairs. I put an elevator in it so I could lift it upstairs. Laura can't carry it, then I'm not. It doesn't get up there <laughs> without the elevator. But it's, you got to, I don't know, you got to, you, you can, you can survive doing anything you want to do if you're good at it. If, uh, if somebody's looking at moving from a, a hobbyist to a, a part-time maker, what are, what are the, the must-have skills at, at kind of what level? Like, a big clean work. You got to build a client base, and it can't be built on nonsense. Uh, I've seen this happen personally. Is uh, people are they get fairly successful with the internet stuff, and they get a following on there, but their skill sets don't match that. And so yeah. what happens is they get all this expectation built up, and then they get a few accolades here and there. And then they get people that do not know what they're doing buying their work. And that's fine, you know, except when the person gets educated and suddenly finds out that there's no secondary market for their work and you can't give them away. Unless you love the guy and want to keep them for life, then you got to have work that will carry itself on the secondary market or you don't have a business. <clears throat> that's the That's the cruel reality of the collector end of it. And then the other thing is, is collectors are not there because they're your friends normally. In a lifetime of doing this work, you'll meet a half a dozen people that become close friends that you like, that are collectors, that are willing to invest with you. But this is all expendable money, and that's what most people don't understand. This is expendable income. It can dry up, or if the guy gets uh, 
So I'm not going to collect knives anymore. I'm going to go fishing. Well, then he goes and buys fishing equipment. And you're, all your clientele's gone. I've seen very, very successful makers. They get like two or three clients, and that's all they sell to. They sell to two or three guys, and that's it. Well, guess what? When those guys die or stop collecting, what happens to your market? If you're no longer the flavor of the month. Uh, you're done. I, I got a one guy I know, and man, he was one of the finest folder makers you ever saw in your life. I mean, he's just incredible maker. And uh, he uh, got in with a guy that was going to pay him like thirty grand a month, which was unheard of money back in the '80s, just to have first choice on all of his work. And he bought everything the guy made, and uh, and resold it for a profit, and made money on the guy. And then one day the guy goes, uh, I'm old and I'm sick. I'm not doing this anymore. Bye. Yeah. And his now this other guy's whole market's gone. He, he, there's no place for him to sell his work. And he never recovered from it. Never recovered from it. If you get that flash success, that needs to be your springboard. That doesn't, that, that shouldn't be where you stop. You need to take right. whatever you're getting off of that and build on it. Yeah, you gotta keep you gotta keep building clientele, and you gotta do stuff that's interesting, and it's not the latest crazy thing. That uh, my buddy Jurgen Steinau, he I remember when he came, it's like ninety two, I think was the first time I saw him, and he was from East Germany. He was old ex East German border guard, but he made beautiful knives, and his knives didn't even show up. They were caught up in customs till Sunday. Oh. So he's over there with his head down on the table and. And he didn't speak a lot of English, but I, I, I went to visit with him. And then when his knife showed up on Sunday, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. They looked like pieces of mirror fitted together, absolute mirror polished and precise angles. And I was, I thought this thing was a ridge sticking up out of the knife. And I reached to touch it, and I realized it was a hole. It was a floor, but it was flat and absolutely mirror polished. Wow. And I'm looking at it, and I went, oh, my God, look at that. And it was the strangest stuff you ever saw. If you look up his work, you'll know what I'm meaning. Anyway, people went around and said, oh, you got to start making more contemporary. You'll never sell that stuff. You'll never sell it. Well, listen, that, those knives now bring anywhere from 40 to 80 grand a piece if you can find one. And he just sold a knife for about $150,000, one knife. Wow. But he stuck with his designs. He made the name for himself, and he never varied from it. And he was always good with his customers, and his design work was his design work, and that's what he did. And he stuck to his plan, and it worked. It absolutely worked. He, he's him and guys like Michael Walker and uh, Wolfie Lortner and that bunch. There's a good. They are as good as it gets. I mean, it, you can't ask for better work than that. And there's some new guys coming that are as good as they are, but they aren't that legendary yet. When you say when you say clean work, what what are you looking for? Um I like want all finish I lines. Want, uh, yeah, I, I want the design to be pleasant to the eye. I want uh I want every line in that thing to be tangent. I want it to look good. I want it to feel good. It has to perform. Uh, it doesn't have to have the 
latest XYZ steel that you can't sharpen in the fields, but because it's got a cool number, you can't chase that dragon because all steels get to about the same hardness. And what you have is a choice of stainless or not stainless. And uh, because if it's in an environment and you're building knives for a guy that doesn't want to do maintenance, then you use stainless. If you want a guy that absolutely performance and cutting and wants to sharpen in the field, then you use carbon steel. That's my view. But, uh, I've had people disagree. Well, we make these steel, this steel is $45 a pound. Well, so what? Uh, if I got to buy an $80 diamond to sharpen the thing, you know, I don't need that. Anyway, uh, just my view. Yeah. Um, what kind of finish are you looking for? Like, just a nice smooth. In a working knife, I want something that can be refinished. In a in a custom knife, I want that thing to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So absolutely perfect. So for for clean, a, a nice flat satin finish is a is a working blade. Um, yeah. And then you're looking for no glue lines, good symmetry. Um, yeah, absolutely. All the little stuff. That's the little stuff that adds up. You want you don't want the pinheads sticking out of the damn thing unless they're all domed and designed to be that way. Uh, you, uh, all the lines have to be right in it. The cutting edge has to be designed to cut, not not be a uh, shingle throw. <laughs> if the edge is too steep, you know if you're stabbing holes in imaginary opponents, it doesn't matter. But if you're trying to fillet a fish or clean a, a big old moose or something like that, you want that thing to work. Yeah, a knife. Well, a knife. I sandblast every. I sandblast all my working knives because I want to be able to refinish them. Yeah, I can hand sand them, and then a the guy goes and guts a, a wampus with it, throws it in his box, and forgets about it for three months, and it comes back pitted. And then I gotta spend a day and a half hand sanding that thing for three hundred fifty bucks. No, thank you. I'll go up back and I'll regrind it. And reset the edge on it. Go in my sandblaster, blast it. I'll hot wax it. I'm done. Back in the sheath, and it's off it goes. I I feel like I, I should point out that uh, stainless steel doesn't pit. <laughs> I've seen some that did. It came out of New Orleans after the flood. Oh, fair point. <laughs> yeah. I just had to take my shot at the old guy. Oh yeah, yeah. but the stainless steel is. It's absolutely got a place. I used a, a ABL in, in a, most of my offshore fillet knives just for that reason because the people won't maintain the steel. I, the steel hold up. Uh, one of my closest friends, Tom Keith, he's, you know, he was in a steel things for 27 years and they would get cases of carbon steel K bars and that's what they carried in salt water. But they cleaned them up when they got out. If you're not going to maintain it, then it's going to be maintenance-free. That's why you can go buy a knife that will cut, sort of, at Wally World for 30 bucks, and it'll, it'll do nicely. It won't rust, but it won't cut very well either. But if you use a decent steel like the ABL, some of the modern steels will cut like crazy. As a matter of fact, if you set that up right, it'll cut almost as good as 52100. I, I love how fine an edge or how keen an edge AEBL will take, especially if it's been cryo quenched. Oh yeah, that's all. I like it on my fillet knives. I use it a lot. I, I like S thirty five for the fillet knives, just for how tough it is. 
that I can get a, a yeah, thin right. blade and a high grind and it'll come back to true. Right. Um, That's fine. I'm just not familiar with it. Yeah. I, I got no quarrel with it. I just like to use stuff that I know because I heat treat in the shop 99% of the time. Well, and we both know that what the steel's made of is only a fraction. I mean, if you don't have your heat treat dialed in, it doesn't matter what the steel's made out of. Um, we can agree on that. There's um, That's the heart of it. <laughs> if you don't have your heat treat right, then you haven't got any heart in the blade. Uh, Stephen Fowler does things with W2 that just shouldn't be done. Like it, he gets it to do stuff that it just shouldn't be able to do. But he'll tell you up front, I think he bought either three or 600 pounds all at once, all from the same melt. And he dialed in the heat treat and he'll, he's entirely honest. He said, when I run through this, I'm going to have to start all over. The, the, the performance that I'm getting is going to be gone because I have, I have perfected the heat treat for this one melt, this one batch of W2. Um, but he gets it to do things that it just shouldn't be able to do. Well, that's, and, and, and that's correct. I'll tell you where that started was in Japan about 2000 years ago. And everybody goes, how was that got to do with modern steel? It has everything to do with modern steel because all steel was made from bloomery stuff. Tamahagani back in the old day. And it, me and some serious people got into this discussion a few years ago. You can't heat treat a katana made from that material two or three times. You'll lose the blade. And we got to discussing how they could figure it out because every one of those blooms is different, just like that batch of steel that he's using. Every one of those is different. <clears throat> but they made the little tiny blades that they put in the sword sheath that they, they made all kinds of myths about it. Oh, that was for doing their hair or doing their earwax or poking the horse to make his muscles jump and stuff. Uh-uh. That was the test blade for that batch of steel. They did those. They tested that heat treat on those little blades until yeah. they got it right, and then they made the big one. And that's how they figured it out. So the guy that bought 400 pounds of steel and he's got it dialed in, he's doing exactly the same thing they were doing 2000 years ago with just a bigger bloom of steel. Yeah. And it's smart. It's, it's, I mean, that's good science. I'll take my hat off to him. Um, for, for guys that want to start, I'll say making for money, you know, that looking to go part-time, what are, what are realistic expectations? Show up at some shows and take some classes. That'll that will short circuit your learning curve by years if you take some classes with somebody that knows what they're doing. And uh, yeah, the uh, and the other thing that uh, I know I struggle with, a lot of makers struggle with, is learning how to run the front of the house. I mean, how much of, of growing your business and establishing it was the actual forging and then how much of it is running a business? It's about 50-50. Mm -hmm. uh, Jürgen told me that years ago. He said, you know, I, we were in a discussion about 
what you should pay for your your past work. And he said, oh, about 50%, he figures. Because I never was a good businessman. I mean, business is not my forte. And uh, he said, because 50% of the cost of the knife is in the selling of it. And that's where a lot of young makers screw up. They're not weighing in the cost of fuel that it took to go to the post office to mail that thing, what the postage costs, what the packaging costs, what that hour of time that you spent packing that thing up costs. That's why I quit selling steel and stuff out of my shop. I still sell it to friends and stuff, but it takes me an hour to pack up $100 worth of steel. I could have made $100 working on my work in there and not packing up somebody else's startings. Yeah, what it boils down to. I, you know, that's the reason I quit doing it because it, it, by the time I figured my time in it, I wasn't making any money, and I can't hire somebody to come pack up stuff because th- then they'll be asking me questions, and I might as well be packing it myself. <laughs> um, on that, uh, on the front of the house side, what do what are people? What does what do people either need to know or need to be aware of when they start? I mean, we've talked about you need to run it like a business, and we understand you know cost and time management in the shop. Uh, what do they need to be aware of on the the other fifty percent? I don't know because I'm not any good at it. At uh, that's a, that's that's the part of my business that's failed miserably. If it wasn't for Laura, I don't know what I'd do. She takes care of all the bills and all that stuff. Uh, I make the money, but also spend a majority of it on tooling and stuff. It's hard to weigh all it in, but if you're going to do it as a business, then you need to keep books. You need to understand what it costs you. If you buy a batch of steel and it's, uh, say, $10 a pound, and you make a bunch of lives make money, and you can't replace that steel except for $15 a pound, you've got to weigh that into the cost of the product. If It's like like we said earlier, you don't want to put a $300 piece of ivory on a, on a, on a $100 knife. Yep. It, it just doesn't work out. So you have to figure out, you know, what's your time's worth. And then when you first start, you can't, charge as much for your time because your skill sets are not normally there. Yeah. Occasionally you meet somebody where the skill sets are there. Then they they can shine and go on and do what they're going to do. But, uh, normally you don't see people start at a high level. Occasionally you do, but it's pretty rare. Um, what's... Uh... What's your next challenge? What's the next uh, What's the next mountain for you? Settling down, slowing <laughs> down a little bit. Uh, I've got to uh, start doing more knives, and I'm going to do less teaching. I'm going to be more selective with my teaching, who comes and who goes. Uh, my time is getting critical, and uh, just working on stuff. I'm going to spend more time with Laura. And just enjoy life. So uh, that's why we're, we're going, you know, in a few weeks here, we're going to Hawaii, hang out with Neil for a little bit and uh, just relax and then come back and get ready for a blade show. And then after that, I'm just 
I'm just going to take it a little bit of time. I'm going to slow down a little bit on my travel and be a little more. I'm going to try to plan better. I'm not a good planner. Laura's my planner. Yeah, I, uh, I don't plan well, and that's I keep. The, that's the plan until next week. <laughs> yeah, I keep trying to explain to Beth that wide open is a pace. Yeah, it can be. Um, but it also make you run out of gas faster too. Yeah. Um, where do you think the industry's heading? Uh, I don't know. It's uh. It's going to get winnowed out if the economy tanks. If the economy crashes, there's going to be a whole bunch of these little guys go belly up because there's going to be no expendable income to buy their work. <clears throat> I've seen that happen a couple of times over the years. I remember when it had a big crash back in the 90s, and the only thing that was selling was high-end stuff because that market, the people that buy high-end stuff, still have expendable income and there's they can't make any money in the markets and stuff like that. So what they do is they buy things that make them feel better and they enjoy knives. And so usually when the economy is bad, the high end knife market goes up. It's in my experience. It's like Ferraris are uh, recession proof. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting. We're living in some crazy times and, uh, I try to keep my mouth shut on the politics because <laughs> nobody, you it's like being a divorce lawyer. At best, you'll have 50% not wanting to kill you. Uh, so I just don't talk about it. My youngest was <laughs> reading a, uh, a biography about Michael Jordan and he was getting pressured to take some political stances. And he, he I love the quote, but he said, you do realize that conservatives buy shoes too, right? Why, why would I alienate half my market? I'm, I'm selling shoes. I'm not taking stances. Exactly. I'm not a social justice warrior. I'm just me. But when the wheels come off the wagon, mm-hmm. that'll be a, a winnowing effect. Yeah. <laughs> if it hadn't already happened, it may be just sliding to a stop. We'll see. Um. Are there, uh, I mean, we've we've got some of the the super steels and and guys like Laren Thomas are starting to to push the boundaries on some of the homogeneous stuff. But uh, is there any new materials that you think are going to be? Uh, do you see a lot of uh, untapped potential anywhere yet? Yeah, I, I'm thinking I'm going to start investing in uh, cloned mastodons. <laughs> I think they're going to be important to the knife industry. I just want to know. I I don't follow that venue. A lot of people do uh, because they talk about a lot on the net and all. And uh, it's just, I I burned out on it probably in by 90 because I'd ride to these shows with Pendrake and we'd talk about ites, dendrites, perlites, semen tights. All kinds of ites. And we'd do ites. And then sometimes it'd be a 20-hour drive, and he'd want me to sit up all day and listen to his ites. And then when it came night and it was time to drive, I had to drive while he slept and dreamed about <laughs> ites. So I really got burned out on 
metallurgical structure. Now, I can do it, but I have a book with all that stuff in there. And uh, so if I need to know a TTT curve or I want to research a material, then I do that. But one of the things you have to be extremely aware of is in anytime you're using a metallurgical book, now, Laren's doing a pretty good job because he's oriented around knives, but thin section widths, you know, like in knife blades, are much more difficult to get the numbers dialed in than, than a heavy section width. Nearly everything in the metallurgical books is designed around industry thicknesses, and so you have to realize that that's not the case. Uh, what will give you a good lesson on that is doing a hormone quenching. A little thin blade takes about five to seven minutes of soak time, and a, a bigger blade can go 10 minutes. And if you get them reversed, one of them will make a nice pattern, and the other one will not. Or it will, when you quench it, it will go, and it'll break right along that line, and then you go, golly gee, I wish that hadn't happened. Yeah. And then you make another one. And is part of what makes the uh, the thinner blades or Again, thinner Thinner material is hard to work with. Is the they've well, got well, it's the section with the heat time, heat cycles on it. It heats faster. Is that because they've got less mass, so they'll heat faster, cool faster, yeah, and you get exactly. the the seesaw effect? Right. Okay. Um, any equipment? Um, a lot of people talk about three D printers and what can be done with those lasers. They're uh, Anything you've got your eye on? I have, I have both. I have, uh, I've had a 3D printer since I left Colorado. I made that discovery out there, and uh, I use it, and I've got a, about a $70,000 six-axis CNC laser that I've had for four years. So I explore mm-hmm. all of it. And, uh, I'm still paying on that damn laser, <laughs> but it uh, it will do magic. It will do magic. I don't like. I said, if there's something out there that I think that will make my work more interesting or better, I'll own one. I can respect or that. Two. <laughs> um, we have somehow managed to skip one of, uh, if not the most important, certainly the most entertaining uh, question for the podcast. Uh, it has nothing to do with knife making, but uh, it, I, I feel obligated to come back around to it. Um, how did you meet your wife, and where does that fall on the Kyle Dan scale? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. My wife and I have been, like, best friends for 20-plus years. And uh, I met her at uh, met her at Batson's Hammerhead, and her ex and her were there. And uh, they are best friends still. After they were married for 30 years. Anyway. Uh, they just grew up, grew apart, and uh, so we were kind of getting along as friends. And I was married at the time, and uh, my wife passed away suddenly. She had a had a heart uh, had one of her arteries ruptured, and she passed. And uh, I asked Laura. The inside joke is, I asked her to come down and help me get through it, and <laughs> sorting all the clothes and stuff. And I just kept her. But no, it was, we were just destined to be together. We were like fast friends. We could talk about anything. We hung out together. 
and all that stuff. And uh, uh, when she goes home, she's still fast friends with her ex, and uh, they go to dinner and hang out and visit a little bit. And uh, we're all friends. He's come to see us two or three times. There's no hard feeling. There's no sense building a dragon if there isn't yeah. one. Now, I met her at the Hammer Inn up there. It was Dr. Lucy was a personal friend of both bars, James Lucy, who wrote the book on Skagels. And he uh, he had Laura as a student, and she was learning to make knives with him. She got interested. She was making knives long before I met her. And then uh, so after we got together, started hanging out stuff, she used to come down and visit with me and my wife. And then uh, she would work in the shop, and she learned to forged uh, Damascus and all that stuff down there. And uh, it just one thing led to a dang another, and here we are. And uh, I'll tell you what, I've never been happier in my life to have the partner that I have. She's just outstanding. Got no complaints. It, oh, except one. It's, she's got two speeds. Slow and off. <laughs> and if you say anything about being slow, she goes to off. <laughs> anyway, other than that, it's perfect. <laughs> and, and we work together. She, she works in the shop. She's got her own leather shop. She's got her a, a nice little spot, air conditioning and all that stuff. She does her leather work, and then she forges in the main shop. Yeah, we, uh, we're actually looking forward to having her on next so we can go ahead and fact check you. I probably should have mentioned that uh, Beginning oh, of the yeah, show. Absolutely. Well, whatever she says is the true story. Our mind was made up. Um, <laughs> now, she's a, she's an incredibly talented young lady, and uh, she, she does good work. She taught Neil how to do his leather stack and stuff. Really? Handles when, when he was. I, I didn't know that. And he, he still does that on occasion. Um, is there anything that I should have asked that I haven't? I'll think of fifty things after we hang up. But, uh, feel free, feel free to email me. <laughs> no, I just think like a, yeah. Well, it, uh, it, I don't know. It, it just it, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. Uh, this has been an adventure, uh, and what this thing does this this business cross sections humanity. You meet everything from the bottom of the ocean to the up in the sky. Uh, people of every stripe, color, uh, monetary situation, they're all drawn in by this man's oldest tool. And, it, and they're in there for a lot of different reasons. But you will never meet a finer bunch of people to deal with than a bunch of knife makers. Yeah. Like I said, a guy told me one time, if you roll a snowball long enough, it'll pick up a little dirt. Well, this one doesn't pick up much dirt. Usually those guys winnow themselves out pretty quick. But it's a most sharing business. You'll never see this in any other industry where people are willing to share and help each other and teach each other, teach your own, quote, competition. And I would part with one thing. If any new maker any maker or any new maker, if you hadn't thought it through, the only competition you have is yourself. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, what steel they're using, or how much money they're getting for the knives. None of that counts. The only thing that counts is you and your work. You are the only person on the planet that can make your knife. 
And the example for that is, is you'd see Bob Loveless in a knife show years ago when he was active. And you'd go in that knife show and there'd be like a 400-person show. There'd be 300 of them in there making Loveless drop point skinners. And uh, the lower crowd would be getting like two or 300 bucks a piece for them. And the really good guys, they'd be getting 700 800 a piece for him, and then there's old Bob back there with a cigarette and his caustic attitude, getting 2500 to 2700 a piece for those $150 skinning knives. And that's the lesson in it. It's about the story, it's about the time served. That's about it. Picasso's paints didn't cost any more than anybody else's did. It's that name that made it, made his paintings worth what they were worth. He, he, he made it happen. It was a story. People like the story. If people want to find uh, find your work, find out more about you, uh, find your your articles or your uh, your videos, where are some places they can go? Uh, well, uh, Salvation Army, Goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can you can just look me up on the net at. Uh, there, I've written a lot, uh, done a lot of writing, and then there's a lot of video out that I've done with different makers, well-known makers, and I've done some myself. And um, on Instagram, it's just Steve Sforzer, and it's stevesforzer.com as a website. And um, Facebook is Steve Sforzer. There's a couple of them. One of them is Steve Sforzer, Mastersmith, I think. But uh, that's how you can find me. Like I said, it, uh, all my contact stuff is on my website as well. All right, Kyle. There's like uh, all that official wrapping up stuff that uh, you do so well. Yeah. Uh, you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Knife Perspective. And <clears throat> you can find the podcast anywhere you're listening to it now. Uh, you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives, Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Uh, or you can email me, Kyle, at cagedailyknives.com. So thanks, Steve. It's been great talking with you. Lots of good stories and uh, good names for people to look up and learn some more stuff about. Oh, there's some good ones out there. I'm just glad I got to participate with some of them. It's good stuff. Appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. And, uh, I'll tell Laura that you were extra kind to me because I was old. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll get to see her in a day or so. It has nothing to do with the huh? fact that you could whip our ass. <laughs> well, we won't go there. It has to happen within 30 seconds these days. I don't have much gas in the motor. <laughs> All right, you guys take care of yourself. Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Th good night, guys. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. <laughs> good night, Dan. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about.